For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. You're here because this is your favorite place to go to learn as much as you possibly can about the medical cannabis industry. Every episode, I'm speaking to doctors and researchers, cultivators, and lately, some more entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs are the creative backbone of any industry. They're the ones that are driving their particular place of interest forward through new ideas and new possibilities for us to engage with the products and the skill sets of that type of industry. And the medical cannabis industry is no different. And today I am so honored that I get to bring you Juliana Whitney, who is an entrepreneur in the cannabis space. She has two different companies, Leaf Sheets and Can Strategy, and we dive deep into both of them so you can have a better understanding of what it is that she's bringing to the industry and how it might help you if you yourself are trying to get into the industry as an entrepreneur. We take a lot of twists and turns, a lot of laughs. We dive into psychedelics at some point and it gets a little mm, shaky with some of our descriptions of our experiences, but bear with us. It's a lot of fun and we laughed a lot. So hopefully you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Without further ado, I bring you Juliana Whitney. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast, and today I am happy to bring on the show Juliana Whitney. Juliana is president of Can Strategy, a cannabis business strategy firm, and the co-founder of Leaf Sheets, a cannabis business support platform for entrepreneurs. Juliana earned both her MBA and bachelor's degrees from University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and she remains in Vegas and interacts with a multitude of companies nationwide. Juliana, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> sure. We had a couple mishaps along the way, but we finally do it and it's 420. Yeah. So I guess that's really appropriate. It's meant to be. <laughs> meant to be. <laughs> cool. So let's dive right in. I really enjoy the, the metaphor of people talking about with the gold rush, the people that made all the picks and shovels were the ones that made all the money. And so with the cannabis industry, they're calling it the green rush. Yeah. But we're starting to see all these ancillary companies that are more on the digital side of things that mm -hmm. maybe they're the ones that are really holding it down for us. So how did you end up going into this side of the industry? I got into the side of the industry. It's actually really funny you say the picks and shovels thing because my business partner in Leaf Sheets, Nick, always says that. He's like, we're building the shovels. <laughs> yeah. That's what he always says. <laughs> Um, I got into the ancillary side. It's just, I started out in a dispensary. That's how I got into the industry at all. And 
I was working front desk and it was Vegas and I was learning everything, you know, brand new medical market and meeting all the executives because they were their own sales teams at that time. And um, I was getting my MBA and I just love business theory. I love reading about business and how it works, its mechanisms, what works, what doesn't like historical data on. I just love it. And I think that just feeds kind of directly into an ancillary service um, that especially that focuses on, you know, tweaking companies. So that's essentially what Can Strategy does and that what Leaf Sheets does is I just help, you know, kind of apply all this information data theory, these concepts and apply them to make things work better. And let's see if you can compete better and be cooler and like succeed long-term, you know? And uh, I, I mean, how I actually did it was I was working at the front desk of a dispensary, decided I wanted to become a consultant, was getting my MBA, just asked this executive if I could try to open his dispensary. He said yes. Because <laughs> at that point in Vegas, working at the front desk at a dispensary was basically being an expert in Vegas at dispensary operations, like, cause no one had done it. So he was like, sure, you can open it. And, uh, I did. And then I just left the dispensary and have been consulting ever since it's been up and down. It wasn't just a, you know, skyrocketing, but <laughs> yeah, it's not ever a straight line. Is it? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but that's how it started. It was kind of crazy. I tell people like, I don't think that I would do it I wouldn't tell someone else to do it the way I did it. I literally left. I was making, I had no income. I didn't leave with a paying client. I left with no clients and just was like, I'm going to go do this now. (laughs) (laughs) Lost my health insurance. Didn't have an income was like, this is going to work. And it did, but I would not advise going that route. Right. The whole burn the ships route. Oh my gosh. It was, yeah, yeah, it was. I was like, this is fine. Crazy. A crazy, crazy. person. Well, there's a little bit of craziness involved with even <laughs> jumping into the cannabis industry, right? You have to be like a, some kind of activist on some level just to even want to do it. Yeah. You have to be some kind of something. I've been thinking about <laughs> that recently, like just sitting here thinking, wow, this industry, I think entrepreneurship business generally is difficult. It's, it's a lot of work, you know? And then this industry is like a special breed of nuts because it's always changing and which is really cool about it, but also just nuts. And then people are cuckoo. People are like so anxious, so excited, but so anxious. And some trying to do really good and some trying to be shady. And it's like, this is madness. <laughs> it is. I agree. You have to be a little crazy to be like, oh, I think I'm going to partake in this, like, not yet totally solidified industry. Yeah, not at be all. Part of that. But they say what? You're building the airplane as we're flying it? Oh. It feels like that, at least. Oh, it is that. It is that. Yeah. And then the airplane keeps changing directions. The flight plan keeps <laughs> right. turbulence, so <laughs> much turbulence. Yeah. <laughs> like everything. Oh yeah. Crazy. <laughs> but it's fun. So that seems like the perfect invitation for somebody who's getting a master's degree in business studies, right? Business yeah. administration, to be able to apply that 
to this crazy nascent industry. And, and so it became very obvious to me as I was going through the, the can strategy and the leaf sheets sites and seeing what's going on there. I was like, Oh, this woman definitely went to business school. Because <laughs> it, it, it was so thorough and so complete and in so many different ways. It was very impressive by the way. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, that for sure. I mean, it's so, okay. So you're jumping across. So you go directly from a dispensary front desk to starting your own business. And so was this your first dalliance into entrepreneurship as well? No, my first ever was I was seven years old and I started a restaurant in the front yard. Cool. That was my first. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, my next actually was I did this. um, Well, I started a nonprofit organization when I was 24 23 or 24. And it was for girls in foster care. And I kept telling people, everyone makes money and then they turn 50 or 60 and decide they want to be philanthropic. And then they become all charitable. I'm flipping the script. You know, this was my narrative. Um, I'm going to do it first. I think that, so I did, that's what I did. That was my first, like, let me try and run this thing gave me an immense respect for people in nonprofit work. That is hot. That is diff- That is a hustle. Like I've never <laughs> seen. And then the next was my friend Liza and I started something called J and L inspire. And we would do these inspirational videos. I mean, I wish TikTok was around. We would have slayed TikTok. Like, <laughs> slayed. So you do these inspirational videos twice a week and then like go get, speeches and we were just kind of trying to figure out what the heck we were doing but we knew we both are very into like mindset and inspiring people and this kind of thing and through that we got a business consulting client called my vegas magazine and they paid us to come in and essentially like inspire their staff and try and increase you know improve the company culture and and then of course they implemented like 0.2% of anything we told them to do. But that was my intro into consulting, which I think then is why I thought, oh, I could apply consulting to cannabis. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. For sure. So some of the things that stood out for me. So with can strategy, you talk about profitable, purposeful, and primed. I like the alliteration, of course. But um got it. Right. It's great. So the purposeful that must come from some of your old ventures with the the mindset and that kind of coaching. And I'm a huge believer in purpose and I am always trying to figure out how to walk the line between, because I'm also not the person that's like, you know, Oh, corporations are evil. Business is evil. I believe in profit. You know, I believe in money. I like it. <laughs> But I also don't believe in the business that um, makes people feel like if you have employees that can't live good lives, I don't think you're a good business. I don't think you should exist because um, one of the purposes of business is to feed the world and to support it and not just be a charity, but like through good jobs and through good services and good products, you know? And yeah, so a lot of the purpose part comes from that mindset stuff and it's purposeful to be personally fulfilling but also purposeful to be like societally fulfilling and um for your teams and stuff yeah for sure and cannabis is one of those products that does serve a very large purpose in so many different ways it really does and i actually fell in love with that when i was at the front desk 
because I'm not a big consumer. I consume can I probably consume like psychedelics more than I consume cannabis actually. Cool. We'll talk about that later. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wasn't a huge part of the culture before I started um, at the dispensary. And so I was meeting all these customers and just seeing like the emotional attachment that people have to the product and the emotional impact it has on their lives and how serious they are about what cannabis products they have, because it really matters to them. You know, like my water, I really like good water, but if it's okay, water, like I'm fine. It's like, it's not, I'm not that crazy about it. You know, I'm not. Um, and it doesn't emotionally affect me. Like it doesn't change my experience in the world, but cannabis does, you have to get the right product. And so seeing how intimate that relationship was with the product and the consumer, that fascinates me. I'm like, Oh, this is a whole other level of like consumer good and interaction and medicine and all of it. Yeah. It sits at this weird intersection of culture because Mm -hmm. it is medicine. We're slowly being able to understand that is we get to study it more, which I can't believe we haven't been able to do for this whole time, Yeah, but it's, but it's also a product and it's a consumer good at the same time. And that's very unique in our culture. There's not a lot of that that happens. No, it's so unique because even if you sit and think about the parallels that people draw, which are always with alcohol and with pharmaceuticals, it just doesn't come out a one-to-one parallel. It's just not just quite the same, you know, because with alcohol, you've got, yeah, you know, I guess it's controlled and it, it changes your state of mind, not super medicinal, pretty harmful. It's like, <laughs> like a whole other kind of experience and product. And yes, each one has a different impact on each person, but barely different. And it's like barely, you know, sure your alcohol tolerance might be higher, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> Your alcohol tolerance might be higher, but not, no one has, okay, so my, what's your milligram tolerance? My milligram tolerance? Oh, I don't even know. Okay. I, I've, I've never tested it by milligram. Okay. I'm so old my, school. <laughs> I have like a five to 10 milligram, like, okay, I'm good and functioning tolerance. That's my good place, right? And then I know people with a thousand. Wow. Like they didn't take a th- that's so different. A thousand? A thousand. I I can't. Okay. Mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like that's a wild. Um, and so alcohol is not like that, you know? And then with pharmaceuticals, you don't have the same like cool bond with it as a medicine. You're not as happy to take it. It's not like this enjoyable, fun experience. <laughs> like so there, I, you're right in that it's a unique, it's just unique because there's not a direct kind of parallel in terms of products or medicines. Yeah. Well, and right the, just like you said, I mean, a thousand milligram tolerance is ridiculous for a lot of reasons, but one oh is that gosh. you're not going to overdose, which is crazy. Yeah. You're going to, I mean, alcohol, you can get poisoned pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Yeah. Pharmaceuticals, you can overdose. I mean, thousands of people die from alcohol every day. And zero people have died from cannabis. Just zero. Yeah. So, yeah. Plus, it's fun. Like, (laughs) sometimes fun, but alcohol can become a bad time pretty fast. But cannabis is so fun. It's it's pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah. So, that's a bonus. Yeah. About the worst thing that'll happen is you might get really quiet 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have done that. I have thousand percent. One time I got so quiet. My friend looked at me and she said, you're never smoking again. <laughs> she <laughs> was so annoyed. <laughs> like, never again. That's funny. That's good. Okay. So, okay. We're going back into chaos strategy now. Okay. Um, so I saw on there that you've provided solutions for a number of different states and I live in Ohio now to where I grew up, but I just moved back here after like 20 years away. And so I saw that you've done some work in Ohio. What drew you here? How did that happen? What did you do? Tell me more, please. My first ever paying client was in Ohio. All right. Yeah. And they were, they applied for cultivation. We did not win. It taught me a lot, Mm -hmm. including, I'm going to tell you two key things I learned. (laughs) One, do not work. So I worked with a security company to do the security plan because the client said, oh, there's this security company we're going to work with. They can help you with the security plan. And I was like, oh, great. No, disaster, disastrous. I did not vet enough. Like, have you ever written plans like this before? <laughs> like, how good are you? Uh, yeah. um, and then the other thing I learned was how to write more competitively. So Ohio taught me like so much about how to, because they have this thing called the sunshine law, some sunshine rule, something like that, essentially that they have to show all information that's submitted. So they posted all of the applications in 2017 when they announced the winners and I downloaded them all. So I got like Caroleaf and GTI and everyone who back then was like, they were smaller, you know? So, um, but I downloaded all their stuff and I just reverse engineered it and I, (laughs) I like learned so much. Um, but then I worked there this past year too, in Ohio. Cool. Where in Ohio? In Cleveland. So we applied in Columbus, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. Uh-huh. And they had a lottery. I'm sure you know, but there was yeah. a lottery and they're still doing review and stuff. But we got pulled top lottery in Cincinnati. Okay, cool. So that's exciting. But I was actually, um, my biological family is from Ohio. So I used to go there for Christmas. Oh, no, that's cool. Very <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm in Cleveland. So I, awesome. I grew up in the Burbs and I get to live in the city now. It's a whole different place than it was when I grew up. So this is cool. It's a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it's got a cool vibe. I like it. Yeah, it's kind of rootsy. I'm like, this is good. <laughs> yeah. Soulful people, no pretension. I'm like, this is good. I could do this. And you can eat. I'm like, I feel like, because I'm in Vegas, you know, Vegas is like LA standards. You've got to be just fit. So I'm like always thinking about what I'm eating. But I'm like in Ohio, I seem so fit. And (laughs) this is great. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to eat all the food and I'm still among the smallest people in the state. Yeah. Look at me. Pretty true. Pretty pretty just, standards are different. <laughs> They're a little different. It's kind of nice. You can just chill. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So is that how you ended up creating Leaf Sheets was because of all the different barriers that you found and and ran into? Because yeah. it seems like it's a pretty useful service just to offer these one-off sheets for people to be able to use for their businesses. Yeah. So, okay. I haven't found a ton of people that see have gone about like the consulting route in the same way that I have. I find a lot of people usually like hone in on a state where I immediately went, like, I want to figure this out at every state. I want to know all of them. 
And I want to understand the differences and the similarities and like the trajectory, where do the lawsuits, like, I just want to understand, like basically the chessboard of each state, you know, and become part of it. And so then I started to see similarities in, you know, everyone says, oh, the regulations are so different in every state, but there's actually a lot that's very similar, Mm -hmm. very similar. And they might ask it, it say in your application, they may ask the question differently, or they may piece different things together in your waste management plan or, you know, security plan, or just decide different things, go in different places. Um, But there's a lot of similarities. So (laughs) after having, uh, I think it was like six years of doing this. And along the way, I've definitely met a bunch of people who want to get into the industry um, and don't have the, you know, consulting firm funding or big fancy law firm funding and are pretty smart though and have good ideas, you know? So I figured, okay, if I can take what I know, if I can figure out how to do something that can teach people how to approach this process um, and kind of take the documents and make them so they can be applied and tweaked for each state, then we have a product, you know? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of so, reminds me of LegalZoom. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's most, yeah, most similar to LegalZoom. And we have the DIY guides, which were really important to me because I've actually had, I, this actually happened while we were building leaf sheets is that I had this law firm called Fox Rothschild. They sent me multiple Illinois dispensary applicants who had failed, but had 10 days to fix their application to be able to be part of the lottery. And two of them had the same template. I didn't tell them that I wouldn't have known it was a template if two of them hadn't had it. So I'm looking at one. Oh, cool. Cool. The other one, I was like, why is this exactly the same? Like they both have this Navy blue. They like, what what is this? Well, they both got this template. They both failed. And they, because they hadn't been told how to customize it, they hadn't been given any guidance. They were just handed this thing. And that was that not told to put regulations in it, nothing, which then even doubled down my belief in leaf sheets, you know, but it's why like the DIY guides are so important to me because templates, you know, if you don't know what to do with it, it's kind of useless, you know, sure. it's not like yeah. totally complete. So yeah, that's where I got the idea partly from experience, but I had it really early on actually, because I believe that this licensing process is artificially valuable. Like right now you can charge a lot in a state because the state's only giving out X amount of licenses or, you know, whatever, or let's say even New Jersey, it's not that they're limiting licenses right now, but municipalities are limited so much. So you have to understand how to navigate that and do all that stuff. Right. Which makes can strategy licensing service valuable one day (laughs) i think more states will probably it could go two ways it could go away that more states are like oklahoma and are like easy peasy well then the licensing service not valuable Mm -hmm. at all really you know then you just need leaf sheets right if it goes that way (laughs) Um, speaking of side checking here but i saw on the different, I was checking out the different states and everything on the leaf sheet site. And Oklahoma said it has 2,080 dispensaries. Is that a real number? 
Yeah. How is that possible? I might have to go update it. So they have, um, I don't know that those are all actually open. Right. But but the amount of licenses for dispensaries they have. Yeah. So they didn't limit it. And the cost to apply is very low. It's like $2,500. And what you have to have to apply is almost nothing. Like you need to have your proof of residency and your like ID, passport, fingerprinting, all of that kind of thing. Your location, your location distance, but you don't have to have all your plans in place. Wow. So wow. they have almost no barriers. <laughs> so wow. they're just like wild licensed out the wazoo. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy. They, got, they went a little extreme with the, let's put almost no rules here. <laughs> it's, it's not going well, but yeah. So, so how did you build your team for, for both companies? Cause it, <sighs> I noticed that you were doing strategy for cultivation centers, for processing centers, for dispensaries. And yeah. I mean, you have personal experience working at a dispensary, but yeah. how did you figure all that other out for all the other parts of the industry? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so I, anytime we do cultivation or pro- production or processing or if you, whatever, whatever state wants to call it, but that sector, it's so funny. That's like the one that everyone says differently. Whereas the other two, we basically have the same terms. Anyways, anytime I do either of those two, I find a lot of times I'll 1099 consultants because I don't have full time, like I don't have full time, um, strat like work for them right now. So I always have my people that I work with that do processing specifically or that specifically know cultivation, um, and we'll work with them on those projects the documents so like all the sops and you know everything you need for an application i actually learned that so what i found was i um in ohio actually this happened we partnered with an existing cultivator well actually the first ever um dispensary we opened they had a cultivation and production facility so we partnered them with the ohio client and we had them help us write all the SOPs. Well, what we found was growers and like, you know, lab guys don't like writing SOPs. They don't like it. And if you try to get them to do it, they're also not great at it because they're that's not their thing. They do this other thing, you know? And so I developed this method of like sitting them down and grilling them till they want to basically punch me in the face and ask them every detail. <laughs> every move they make. And then I write the SOPs. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how I figured that part out. But I always have someone who actually knows the process. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I can see that growers are, they're scientists, they're botanists, they're engineers, like you have to be pretty They're hands on. They're like, hello, I don't want (laughs) to write this. They're like, I don't know what I do. I just do it. I'm like, okay. Right. I'll write it down. <laughs> I can show you a flow chart of how the clones get to the flower room and over time, but yeah. Oh, uh, it's yeah. That was an interesting lesson. I was like, okay, got it. <clears throat> got it. Yeah. I'm but sure. yeah, that's how we do that. And then in terms of a lot of times with the cultivators and the uh processors, we'll just work on like their branding, their brand representations, like build them. Uh, teams of brand reps build their sales deck help them with their website like restructure the way they're 
what the consumer finds, they look them up, restructure their relationships with dispensaries. They can actually have a sell-through rate in the dispensaries, um, help them with that kind of thing. Because a lot of times they're so just focused on, but we have a really good product. And it's like, that doesn't matter if you can't sell it. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's where we're at. It's like a legitimate business now. I started as a medical cultivator in California in 2004. So I got to see the whole industry rise. And back in those days, like if we got clones of something that we weren't sure what it was, you made up a name and then you took it to the dispensary. And like that, yeah. that was it. Here it is. Here it is. Yeah. We're like, we don't know what this is. <laughs> we had one story. I was like, what are we going to call this? Like, I don't know. I was like, how about LaCron James? They're like, yeah, try it. I took it and they loved it. They thought, I don't, I mean, it was, a, it was a fairly decent product, but the name was good. And they were just like, bring as much as you can. I'm like, Okay, cool. Thanks. That's amazing. I love those stories. I always wonder about what it was like to be part of that kind of thing. Because yeah, when I hear was- some of the names, I'm like, what? Yeah, I mean, that, that's so much of it is made up because I mean, so back then in the mid 2000s, you could go to the dispensaries, you can get clones, but oftentimes it was like this guy came in from Tahoe and he had this killer plant, but he wasn't sure what the lineage was. You're like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I'm like, oh, this beautiful. Take it to the dispensary. They love it. Great. Make yeah. It up. So much, so much is just made up. Wow. And even some of the lineages that have carried forward have come from just made up strains. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, well, I don't know what this is. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> fun. Yeah, really fun. Really fun. Fun yeah. to be on this side of things now though. It got it got yeah. wild. It got really intense and heavy and it's like, okay, cool. Let me let me jump out of that arena and come build some shovels and picks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, let's do this instead. This is a little less dangerous. Cause didn't like California get kind of dangerous? It still gets dangerous. There's still a ton of robberies and yeah. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it it remains dangerous. I mean, as, until the banking laws change, the whole industry is going to be dangerous, which is yeah. an issue. Yeah, totally. Do you have to mess uh, with any of the 280e stuff, or because you're non-plant touching, you're cool? My actual so leaf sheets and can strategy are fine because it's not plant touching, but uh, with clients. I definitely have to kind of help them walk through it. I always get them a cannabis specific accountant because I'm like, I don't know specifically, you know, but it's one of the biggest shocks to them sometimes if they haven't looked into it that much. And they're kind of just coming to me and saying, I want to get into the industry. I've got money, but they've not done research past that, you know, Um, the tax thing. They're always like, there's no way, there's no way that's true. (laughs) Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> They're like, how do you make money? I'm like, that's the big joke. Yeah. Everyone thinks we're all making <laughs> That's the, don't you get it? And then they're like entering the fun house, like <laughs> all the mirrors, like what's going on? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty. That, it's a criminal yeah. shakedown as far as I'm concerned. I, mean, it, yeah. I don't see any difference between that and the mafia that would go storefront to storefront collecting their dues. I mean, yeah. But what's the difference, really? Yeah. And that's, I hope it doesn't work that way for too long. Because I think that is part of what then creates businesses doing some shady things. Because they're trying to escape the pressure and limits they're put under. 
um, especially if they get in a weird financial spot, you know? Yeah. And then what happens? They get in trouble because compl- and it's just like feeds itself. <laughs> it's a whole kind of chaos. Yeah. The, and it's, it's so complicated just from state to state and depending on the maturity of the industry there, like an ounce in Michigan is a hundred dollars right now. But yeah. if you want to get an ounce in Ohio, it's going to be about $300. And, and that's, I mean, you could take one step and be from Ohio to Michigan at, at some places in Ohio and Michigan. Right. But it just depends on the maturity of the industry. It depends on the tax structures. It depends on how many dispensaries are there, how many cultivation licenses. And are you running yeah. into any of those kinds of difficulties from state to state? In terms of? Oh, in terms of um, educating the client on what it's going to take to be profitable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it's, it is interesting how it's different from state to state in that. So we always have to do a financial plan and just the difference in like, okay, well, what's a, you know, wholesale, what are the wholesale prices that completely changes your entire game <laughs> I can take you from like, we make money to, we make no money. Like there's no money or, and then that like, um, you know, impacts the consumer because then it's like, okay, well, if you're at this price, you only have so much of a willingness to pay before they're just going to buy from their dealer still, you know, or find one if they really want to. Uh, so yeah, it definitely is. It's interesting to help clients. And then also I'll help people find, uh, places to acquire and I will help in doing that, I have a lot of people, let's say, from outside of Vegas who are who want to own something in Vegas. That's like one example. But they just don't understand because they look at Vegas and they're like, ah, oh, like most profitable, you know, this is crazy. And it probably will be like that. But actually, like so many people are struggling. Um, I'm like helping people understand here's how you're going to compete. Like you can't just own something here. That's one of the biggest things, which is so silly because competition is a normal business practice. It is a well-known, you know, industry across the board, wherever you're at, any kind of business, you got to compete, you know, even if you're selling candy at school and (laughs) you've got to have the better candy and, um, kind of helping them figure out, well, how do I even compete on this product and who's my consumer and how do I reach them? And like all those things, how do you do deal mixes and like figuring that out. Yeah. I saw that. That's a component, like a matchmaking component to what you do too. Yeah. I like to call it matchmaking. It feels like matchmaking. It's Mm -hmm. very emotional. (laughs) emotional. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. Getting those deals, like matching a buyer and a seller um, for an actual business. It's so funny because they're, they both always have, which I imagine matchmakers deal with. They both always have, they're like, well, I'm not doing this. This is where I draw the line. <laughs> and then they're like, well, I have to have this before I'll even meet them. And it's just like all of that, you know? Yeah, sure. It's so funny. And the emotion yeah. involved with the entrepreneurs, if they're going to sell, I mean, that that's their baby. That's yeah. tough. Yeah. And no one, I find that people are worried about getting 
almost like they don't want to be embarrassed because I think a lot of them don't actually know what their business is worth. And they're not sure what other people in their market have actually gotten because there's always all these rumors about, oh, this company got $50 million for X, Y, Z, you know, but then, you know, if you don't look into that deal, you don't know that it was 75% stock, you know, (laughs) like you've got to look into that. So then people run around like, well, I want 50 million cash because they got 50 million, but they didn't get 50 million cash. So it's like all that kind of thing. No one wants to be the one that's kind of duped and gets bought out without, you know, having really made it worth it. Oh, for sure. For There's sure. all of that. Yeah. The, the balloon devaluations and it's, oh man. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really- made up. They're just also, they're just made up. Oh yeah. I mean, some of the big <laughs> Canadian companies like the Tilray and Canopy, I mean, they have been in the red for years, quarter after quarter after quarter, they're losing tens of millions of dollars. And okay, you know, CEOs are still making 30, 40 million a year. I don't know how that works, but it's a weird industry. Oh, totally. I love, I love looking at those big companies because business theory, you know, Yeah. I love that they are feel okay saying they're that valuable being as young as they are. Um, which because it's not tech. That's one of the biggest reasons I find it so funny. Like a lot of the behaviors in cannabis are emulating technology and it is not the same. I'm like, technology is technology. They're doing things like, you know, creating platforms that have never existed and who knows what else, you know, this is scalable. Technology is infinitely scalable, infinitely scalable. It's genuinely changing. Like, it could, I mean, Facebook changed the world, you know, you could like genuinely change things, um, and make something that doesn't exist. The important thing I think with cannabis is like focus on making really good products. This is a product and it's existed for, it's a plant. It's been around, make really good products, but so many people are, it seems want to approach it. Like they've reinvented the wheel. They've reinvented business that none of this has ever been done before. <laughs> just so weird and then they have these giant valuations with like all this uncertainty which is one of my favorite parts is like their valuations are based on the future when the future is so wildly unpredictable and so I'm like cool do that but at the same time I would just wish I could talk to investors and be like are you serious like you're really not evaluating this further you're really just gonna be like sure yeah, it's a big gamble. Uh, part of any sales pitch for any company is like, oh, yeah, well, it's going to be legal in the States in the next five years for sure. So we're good. That's why you can look at us like a billion dollar company. It's like, exactly. that's, that's a big gamble. It's not even legal medically federally. So, like, the, yeah. the thing that it's going to go legal from some kind of adult use perspective is it's a massive gamble. Oh, and I, there's so much to it. It's like, oh, and then it could go the route of, wreck or it could go the route of becoming a very pharmaceutical thing. Like there's so many ways this whole thing could merge that I'm like, I mean, it's a lot of fun to do. And I think this is where purpose comes in that a lot of the big guys are just building as much as they can. They'll get, I saw it in Ohio locations just to get locations that you would never have a retail location. Some of the spots that are on that list that got pulled at the top, ridiculous. You would never see 
anyone put a retail location in these places, but they like fit the parameters. They were not intentional. Whereas with my clients, I don't care. I don't care if we need a spot. We're not applying on a shitty spot. Yeah. It's not happening just to have a spot. No. Well, cause of all the, what the regulations around how far you have to be from schools and how yeah, close you churches. need to be. To, yeah. 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 But it's like, I guess essentially my point is it's great to build a large company, but definitely do it intentionally. And I think a lot of these big guys, like ones you just mentioned are not doing that. They're just like, you know, strong fist in like throwing stuff together, speaking big words, very loudly, all confidently. (laughs) And they're like, look what I made. (laughs) I'm making a thing. And it's like, are you? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I got to interview Adam Bierman a couple months ago, which was really cool. Yeah. And he he genuinely did make a big shift in the industry because when he yeah. brought MedBen out, it was it went from these little kind of know, like shitty little hippie joints was what the dispensaries yeah. were. And he was like, nah, he made it an Apple store. It was beautiful yeah. and gorgeous and took it across the country and became yeah. a, a billion dollar valuated company. It was crazy, which totally changed how all dispensaries act from there forward. So that's yeah. pretty cool. But also it was all a lot of smoke and mirrors and kind of fell apart. Totally. Which I always have some kind of like, um, I would, by the way, I remember when they did their big raise and I had just started in the industry and I called it. I was like, nope, <laughs> that's going to go wrong. I just knew it. But there's always something in people. So he's not like Theranos, let's say, but mm. there's something magical <laughs> about those people though, because like let's say even if the story of MedMen, even if people look at him and think, oh, that went wrong, but you're right. He did make a change in the industry. He shifted this mindset and just moved really fast and was like, let's see what we can do. And honestly, MedMen still has a good name. It does. Not a, in the industry, people know things went wrong, but consumers have no idea. Consumers still think MedMen is cool and great. And you know, they have no clue. Truly. I mean, they still have their storefront on Fifth Avenue. You know, it's a, yeah. They're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah. But, yeah, definitely one that built something very big, very fast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being mindful can help out in those situations. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, right? Totally. So, I have an entrepreneur buddy. He's a second-generation entrepreneur. And he was like, an MBA is the fast track to middle management. So he he doesn't know any entrepreneurs in the MBA. He doesn't think it's a good idea to get one if you actually want to be an entrepreneur. What have you seen among your classmates and what gave you the courage to say, screw all that, I'm going to branch out on my own? So my blind confidence gave me the courage to say, screw all that. Cool. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Kind of just gets me through life, you know, <laughs> just don't question it. Um my classmates, a lot of them actually were already middle managers and they were getting their MBA. I decided to get mine because I have always been entrepreneurial my entire life. I also know that there's limitations in the way that I naturally am entrepreneurial in that there was a lot of structure and technical things that I wanted to know. 
and that I didn't want to learn the hard way. I think a lot of stuff is really cool to learn the hard way, but learning accounting the hard way, not super fun, not fun. Um, you know, time value of money. I'd rather learn that in a book from a professor. So there were things like that, that I wanted to learn in a structured way. (laughs) Um, and I, that's what I told my dad. My dad was so mad that I wanted to get my MBA because my undergrads are sociology and communications. So he was like, why are you not still going with liberal arts? You know? And I said, I've always been in a business. I told you that. And I just don't want to have to learn everything in the school of hard knocks. Cause I'm going to learn most things there, you know, but yeah, most of the people, I think I know one other, one or two other people in my whole class that were entrepreneurial at all. Yeah. And yeah, it, I don't think it's the fast track to middle management. I think it's like kind of for middle management, <laughs> <laughs> know, but it's actually not middle management. Any executive you see, even at the largest of companies, they all have MBAs. Yeah. So it's really for corporate. It's, it's, it's a very fast track to corporate, you know? That makes sense. Um, and yeah, it's interesting because people will say things like, ugh, MBAs. My dad will say it. And my mom will be like, Juliana's an MBA. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I forget. But, um, but you, I, see, you were able to apply it directly to oh, your businesses. I always, like constantly, I value getting that degree so much and uh, it's interesting because I'll be in meetings or conversations, even with people I like work side by side with, and they're very entrepreneurial and went hundred percent, you know, just grit. And, um, there will be conversations we have that they're learning something or kind of seeing something. And I know in my head, like I read a case study about this or like, okay, well, there's actually a lot of data that this happens in businesses or that kind of thing where it's like, oh, I know that this has happened before. It will happen again. It tends to happen. Here's how you approach it. So it gave me that kind of information that it's like, not everything is new, you know? I can see how that'd be very helpful. Yeah. I started a, a few different businesses and the one brick and mortar business that I did was crazy. Like I didn't know at all what to do. I walk into city hall. I was like, please point me somewhere. And yeah. you need this form. It's like, great. Where do I get that? Oh, you have to go to this government building. That's all the way across town. Okay. Go there. It's like, Oh, but you didn't go here first. No, I did it. Oh my God. It was yeah. just months and months of just running around at different places, trying to find the right paperwork that I didn't know that existed until I spoke to the person that told me that I had to have it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, so it's actually funny you say that though, the entrepreneurial rhetoric of don't get a degree, essentially like degrees are useless. is so funny to me. Um, because I see what people mean, but I definitely, I was raised by two college professors. So I obviously cannot stand in the, you know, the school of thought of degrees are useless, but I do get why they get a bad rap. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a master's degree in consciousness. So it's like, meh, I don't know what that has to do with business, except for the fact that I get to inter communicate with different people in ways yeah. that other people may not, because I know the history of philosophy and Western thought, you know, so that's helpful, I guess. That's amazing. But, but also you're good at critical thinking and you can probably tie events together. It right. gives you strategic. Yeah. It's like, it helps with that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's about the bigger picture. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, changing gears again. So you had mentioned your biological parents, and I saw that you have another nonprofit, right? The that adopted girl. Yeah, the one nonprofit that adopted girl. That adopted girl, and so that was. So were you a foster? I don't know if you want to get into it or not, but I'm curious about that story too. Oh, I'll get into it. <laughs> I was not a foster kid. I was adopted at birth. So my parents were in the room with my birth parents when I was born and I had an open adoption. So I grew up knowing my birth dad and my birth mom and I knew my birth dad better. So I'd see him more often and uh, they kind of integrated my parents and I into their family. So we would do Christmases together and stuff. And then when I was like 23, I wound up wanting to write a book. I never finished that book. Um, so I wanted to write a book. I started writing it. I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book from the perspective of an adopted kid, but not from like a highly abused perspective or an overly optimistic, mushy, gushy, like you were born in my heart, not in my stomach. Cause they say stuff like that. the adoption platforms. And it drives me crazy because when I was 12, I had a total emotional breakdown, total. And it all had to do with my adoption and like figuring out that piece of me. And then I was put in therapy on the spot. Like my mom put me in therapy basically immediately. And I like worked through it. And I had this really cool chance to work through that with professionals, which not a lot of kids get that chance, you know? So after like working through those wounds and kind of understanding the complexities and the impacts that adoption actually has on kids, even if they're adopted on the day they're born, Mm -hmm. I wanted to write about it. And then as I was writing about it, I started a blog as well because I thought, Oh, I'll market the book through the blog. I'll build an audience. You know, that blog started to get comments from adults who'd been adopted as kids talking about all kinds of stuff. Um, A lot of how they didn't get, you know, how they were treated in foster care, how they never got to talk about their adoption with their adoptive parents and stuff like that. So then the blog was called that adopted girl. And because I just, this is the way I especially did things. Then I just took the name. I figured out how to incorporate a 501 C three did it myself and just turned the blog name into a nonprofit name. (laughs) Ran with it and started working with girls in foster care from ages 12 to 18 and talking to them like about self-worth and stuff. Cause that was my big struggle. It was like, you gave me away. What was my, what am I worthless? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. I, I have a running theory about humans and, and our weird attachments to emotions and stories and things like that, because there's a lot of virtue signaling and shame around rescue dogs, right? And so yep. like, if you go and you get a purebred dog, so you're going to get shamed by people. And because right. you, sh- you need to go to a, a shelter to get rescue dogs. And there are a lot of children that need, well, rescuing, but adoption, right? Yeah. I mean, different term, obviously. But there's so many different psychological things that go along with it. And the, the upbringing that they had, the bouncing around from foster home to foster home or just a group home or whatever it might be. And it's complicated, huh? Oh, it's complicated. I say if you're not, I say this about having children also, but (laughs) if you're not really drawn to it naturally, don't do it just because you think it's a good idea. 
because I know I had all these emotional struggles my parents had to deal with, and I didn't come from foster care. I literally, they got me brand new, you know, and I still like, had these things. So then it's, you, you know, then you add experiencing trauma, um, neglect, abuse, or foster care, whatever to that. You have to really be willing to do it, you know? Yeah. It's no joke. It's a great thing to do. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Broke my heart when I first learned about the foster industry. It's so, oh, yeah, oh. it's it's dis- disturbing. It's, it's madness. It's really disturbing. My biggest things with that adopted girl was that I know trying to say like I'm. People would say, "Oh, she's an adoption advocate," in like articles and stuff. And I said, "I'm not an adoption advocate. I'm not. I'm just a like there's." hundreds of thousands of kids in the foster care system every single year, all of whom are going to grow up into functioning adults in our society. So instead of acting like they're not there and leaving them in the hands of who knows, you know, what families or the system, like if we could at least pay attention, understand they're there and do anything at all to try and provide support while they're there and like uplift them and give them resources then that will at least benefit society positively moving forward. You know, I'm not trying to tell everyone to like adopt a child, but you, it's very easy to like donate clothes or to go and do tutoring or to, you know, I don't know, sponsor pizza party or whatever. That's easy. And make them know, like people know you're there. You're not invisible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So. So this might be a stretch of a segue, but um, cannabinoid medicine and mental health, do you, yeah. do you see any bridge there? Any way that there might be utilization within the, the foster care world of sorts with, I mean, obviously not THC because that's not a good idea for kids, but right. <laughs> but there's been a lot of promise around the other minor cannabinoids. Yeah. I think that uh, I've actually had this conversation with this woman who runs this really cool organization called St. Jude's Ranch and they have uh, kids in foster care, but they're like more highly troubled kids. And it's this ranch and like all these kids live there and the parents live there. It's this whole thing. I was telling her, I've always tried to do things that have cannabis companies raise money for kids in foster care. I tried to do this back, like I think before I even got into the industry and people are always like, you're trying to tie kids to weed. I'm like, no, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to tie money to nonprofits. That's all I'm trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I told her, I was like, you know, kids in foster care have PTSD at a rate higher than veterans. They have, almost all of them have PTSD. Um, they're so abused and so neglected. Yeah. And in, you know, so I do think that there's a tie there when they're kids, maybe like CBD and stuff like that, just a lot of them are anxious, <laughs> just anxious. Yeah. Uh, but when they're older, I think there's probably going to be a lot of therapeutic use for these kids to help deal with their PTSD, you know, and to not, but be just put on 
opioids and stuff like that to not just be put on pharmaceuticals. A lot of those kids are there because of opioids, by the way. I try to tie that to I'm like, you realize cannabis is part of like it really all ties together because like it just ties together, you know, because like opioid use increased the amount of kids in foster care. It really did. Yeah. So cannabis reduce opioid use and reduce that it ultimately like relieves the burden on the foster care system. And then, so that is like kind of a roundabout way that I I think that they tie together, but then I think, yeah, directly to as a therapy for these kids, like when they're old enough to consume THC and cannabis generally as a whole plant, that, um, that it'll be useful. And I hope that they're given the resources to know about it. So they're not just put on a bunch of pills, like right out of care, you know, cause they, and it's PTSD, but yeah, like other mental illness stuff and they have a lot of it, you know, yeah, a lot of it. Depression. <laughs> um, so psychedelics have been all, there's so much research going on right now, treatment resistant depression and the incredible breakthroughs we're having with psilocybin around that. And then PTSD, MDMA is working better than anything ever has in the history of anybody trying anything. So, yeah. yeah. You mentioned that you're into psychedelics. (laughs) What what was your foray in that direction? What was my foray? It wasn't that long ago. It was uh, 2019, I think. So just like three years ago. And... I was leaving my first company, my first consulting firm, because in that one, I had business partners and I was like devastated. And that company was called the J Whitney group (laughs) and I had to leave and I went on just basically like soul searching was like, I'm just going to do vision quests. So I was meditating constantly, like meditating, journaling, affirmations, all these things. And decided that I wanted to do ayahuasca. I was like, I really want to do an ayahuasca ceremony. And I'd been saying that. And then I met a new friend and I told her, and I'd never met anyone else who was, everyone else had been like, oh man, that stuff is crazy. You know, that stuff is, oh no, you puke, all this stuff. And I was like, okay, whatever. But she was the first person that said, oh yeah, I've done it. And I was, oh my gosh. And so for my 30th birthday, she bought me a ayahuasca ceremony. (laughs) And so that was my first psychedelic experience. And then from that point, I just kept diving deeper. I was like, big fan of psilocybin, big fan of LSD. And then MDMA, I think I've done like one time. Yeah, it's not Um, a traditional psychedelic no, and that, that one I had just talked so much. <laughs> like, it was extreme. But like psilocybin, I love. I microdose it relatively frequently. I'm a big fan. I went to Tulum for five weeks last year to do another like, okay, let me get my vision clear here. What's my life strategy to build all my things? And I microdosed like at least three times a week while I was there. I'm saying three is probably three to five yeah. <laughs> times a week. Well, they usually don't recommend more than three times a week because you want no. to be able to reset your receptors. Your whole brain. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was on yeah. one in Tulum. Yeah. I was on one basically. <laughs> I was like, took a break when I got home, you know? 
but yeah, I'm a big fan. I like big, big fan and I totally see the benefits and it's so good. Do you know if they've ever shown anything with psilocybin and memory loss? Oh, I don't know if they have any specific studies around that right now. That's an interesting one. Why have you got your memories back? No. So my dad is losing his memory and I told him, I wonder if he took some psilocybin, if your connectors would like, I don't know, reconnect. He's nervous about it. So I'm well, trying to do it. Cause it actually reduces brain function. It slows everything down. It slows it down. Yes, it does. But doesn't it increase connectivity? It increases connectivity in different ways. But everything slows down also, and it kind of mutes the different the storytelling mechanism that we have, this default mode network. It yeah. mutes that whole thing so that you're not telling yourself that's whatever stories you might get wrapped up in and allows you to actually create the connections that you might have created as a child seeing things for the first time. So yeah. that way, it might work. I don't know. I bet it wouldn't It'd hurt. It wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Try. <laughs> Try. That's yeah. impressive. You went straight into the deep end. Ayahuasca first. I know. How, <laughs> I know. It's big. So bizarre. I did it with this tribe that travels around and does these ceremonies. And so I really want to go directly to Peru or to Costa Rica or something and do it. Yeah. I went to Brazil from my first set of ceremonies. So awesome. it's worthwhile. Very worthwhile. I'm going to do it. Did you? But I didn't even get sick. Everyone around me got sick. Yeah. I, I say if you're lucky. If you're lucky, you get sick. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I mean, it's the the purging is such a powerful experience. It, it feels like you're getting rid of things that couldn't possibly exist within your body. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had some strange experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I vomited. Excuse me. Excuse me, listeners. Yeah. Information that you need. <laughs> <laughs> um, a bowl full of black dry flecks, like little flecks. They almost look like ashes, but like a full bowl full just came out. Yeah. I have, I have no idea how that could possibly happen. That makes no sense. Oh, so like physically things that you can't imagine. Physic, yeah, f- actual physical things. Oh, wow. And this was about three hours after everybody had come down like we were all just kind of hanging out yeah. dis- discussing our experiences and i was like oh no what's this and it was like Hur. wow ash. just a, a bowl full of ash that's crazy that's actually so funny because i got sick once but it was after everyone went to sleep uh-huh. <laughs> and then i got sick but yeah i don't know i'm excited to do it again have you done combo i have i have i love combo Really? I will never do it again. Oh, I did it three times. I have how many? 17 dots on my arm. Uh huh. I did the three within one uh, full moon cycle. Right, yeah, I did that. Yep. Yeah. Um, you don't like it? No, no. I think it's the most miserable thing ever. <laughs> it's just it's so oh. uncomfortable. Oh, my God. And just coming out of both ends. I'm like, oh, why? this feels terrible. Like, at least at least give me some kind of cool visual or like fun thoughts. I'm just like, Oh, oh when's it going to stop? What's it? 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yes, it is. I agree. Physically it's rough. It is a rough one, but I really love it. Like every time I did it, I felt like 
I don't know, a lot of connectivity very quickly, but in like, in such a clear way. Mm. And I just loved it. I'm like such a fan. Yeah. The, I, the after effect is great. It's like, yeah. do you have any tattoos? I have one. So that moment when a tattoo is done, like the session's over and the artist is like, <laughs> I'm done. You're like, ah, oh, okay. And it's just like this relief and release. That's so powerful. That's kind of what combo reminded me of. It was like when it's over, it's like, ah, okay. Like just right. grateful to feel like a normal human. <laughs> oh, I always felt like I was a magical fairy after combo. And then just eating all the best, like, fruits and veggies and everything tastes so good because you've been starving yourself for like 24 hours at that point (laughs) this is amazing (laughs) I I was but I did it all three times with my friend and she had a rough time the last time oh man she got frog face so cool oh (laughs) my gosh like I just didn't even want to tell her what she actually looked like. <laughs> like your face—it's so freaky. It's really freaky. Yeah, so I don't know that she'll ever do it again. But I really like—I'm a big fan of it, and I felt so cool, which is so goofy. But I loved that because I did it on my arm. People asked, you know, because it has the dragon's blood on there, so it looks so intense. But what is that? And so I got to tell the story so many times. Oh sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I did I did my three sessions with it was one day combo, one day ayahuasca, one day combo, one day ayahuasca, one day combo. So I was squeaky clean by the end of that week. Yeah. It was kind of intense. It was That's kind of a intense. intense way to do it. You must have slept for like two days. Uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have slept so much. Yeah. Where did you do your burns? Um I did it on my arm. I kind of like your upper arm. My upper arm, yeah. Can't really see him anymore. I did it right along the line of an existing tattoo. Oh. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was. You're so funny. You're like combos the worst. <laughs> it's disgusting. So it's so tough. <laughs> Just all this water. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Rough, rough. All right, we're gonna change directions. We gotta get to get out of the the excreting bodily fluids section of the show. Um, so back to the practices. So you had mentioned that when you were going through this big change, you started doing yeah. visualizations and meditations and all that kind of stuff. And, and how have those carried through and helped you along your entrepreneurial path? <sighs> all my meditations and affirmations. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they are my lifeblood. Like I can't survive without it because I still, well, one, those moments help me gain clarity and disconnect from what can become just like the anxiety of everything. I find like if I get too in the weeds of all the minutia of what is business, all the little things, like all the contracts, all the resistances people have, and the, like all, then I just freak out. Like I just can get in this very, the world starts to seem smaller, you know? And so meditations and affirmations help me remember that I am one with source energy, you know, and all is possible. So that's really how it helps me. That actually happened recently. <laughs> I was like, I had not meditated or done any of that in a while. And I was on one. I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm a failure. Like I was just not okay. Like, like, 
everything's failed. Um, uh, whoops. I, uh, um, time to rewrite life. I don't know what to do. Like I was just freaking out. I was freaking out and then realized, okay, I should probably, I should probably meditate. <laughs> like, cause I just got in the state, like none of this is going to work. What are you out of your mind? You know, cause it's a lot of scary things like to what it's a lot of what can feel like risk. But if you, if I step back and look, it's not actual risk, but it can feel like it. And so, yeah, that stuff just reminds me of me and helps me detach from all the little things, you know? Yeah. Like a big, big, I couldn't do any of it without that stuff. Yeah. I think that's so important. Yeah. Because (laughs) yeah. What are we really doing here? We're we're this weird meat suit that is ridiculously complicated, animated by some energy that we can't possibly understand that everybody's got a different story for and floating on a really cool rock that's spinning really, 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 really fast, 23,000 miles an hour around the sun. So crazy. Like, what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing? doing? I think we're doing pretty good. (laughs) Just being here, I'm really proud. I'm like, I brush my, I've, my new phrase recently has been being human is a lot of responsibility that like just being human. If you, look at you know how much upkeep we are we are so high maintenance (laughs) it's wild and then you add on top of that that you want to start a business or you're having kids or you're having really like all this other stuff that's on top of just trying to maintain a human body (laughs) like an existence mind-blowing completely mind-blowing used to be so simple we used to just be able to have kids make kids find food yeah. Tell stories and dance with your people. Like that's all you had to do. That was that must have been so cool. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. What a peaceful existence. Yeah. And then maybe sometimes there's like battles, you know, and that's just yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's all the things. It's all the things. That's in the news feed about every day's battles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So good. So we got cannabis, right? It helps yeah. get through all that stuff. Yes. Oh, it helps people get through all of it. Seriously. Yeah, it really does. Thank goodness. We need some help. That's why the plants are here for us. That one of the coolest things that Adam Bierman told me was he was like, I'm looking forward to the day when it's just boring. When weed is boring, when it's not cool, where it's not scary, where it's not being criticized, it's just boring. Yeah. And I was like, I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's just a product. It's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, like, that is what it is. Right, right. Just okay. as simple as like, oh, you, t- you drink chamomile teal before bed so you can sleep better? Okay, great. You know? Cool. So I take a, a gummy half hour before bed too. No big deal. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and where no one feels too cool because they work with it. I think that's really exciting. Right now, there's so much ego around it. Mm. Like that not being, I don't know anyone who works in like chocolate that's got a ton of ego, you know, because they work with cocoa. (laughs) Oh, you you didn't ever live in the Bay Area, huh? I I did not, no. People who made cocos that was just divine and cacao ceremonies (laughs) and oh, so much ego and pretension. Cacao ceremonies. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's there too, even with chocolate. Yeah, the heart opening. Yeah. 
not, not, not taking anything away from the beauty of the ceremony. It's just maybe the folks that run it could have a little bit more humility. Yes, I hear you. Yes. Yeah. Is Adam Bierman still in cannabis or is he doing psilocybin now? No, he's still in cannabis. Okay. Yeah, doing different stuff. Yeah. Different sides of things. Being Still being a, a pioneer, still pushing the limits and Great. things that he wasn't able to talk about because he's doing stuff that's super secret right now. Like, cool. Great. Good for you. Uh, love the super secret. Yeah. Those kind of spirits, you don't just be like, okay, go ahead, you know, switch gears, do your thing, come up with new ideas, keep doing it. It's great. Absolutely. Yeah. So I feel like you have one of those spirits, Juliana. I do? Seems like it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you go do do your thing. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely, I relate to it. Yeah. I definitely relate to it. So is there anything else that you want to... Tell the listeners. No, just go buy, obviously, every Leaf Sheets product 90 times (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) you know, give Ken Strategy a call. (laughs) Yeah, so if you know anybody that's thinking about getting into the cannabis business, it's a really great place to start. You can be able to find all sorts of super helpful forms to help you along your way. Answers to questions. We've got the forms. And it's really, it's, Nick is so funny because he's always like, why do you keep telling people that it, so this is our first step of leaf sheets, right? There's so much more to the vision. And this is the step that I'm really proud that Nick and I built just the two of us. So now we're moving into, we're going to be doing a capital raise so we can build out all the rest of it. So he's always like, you're making it sound like it's not enough as it is. I'm like, it's so cool as it is. And it's only going to get cooler. Like, how cool is it that this is only part of the vision? That is, um, this would be some people's whole vision. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) We'll be building out more pieces of it too. Cool. We'll we'll have to bring you on when you've started to move in those directions too, so you can share more about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm excited. And I'd be so excited to tell you about the raise too. It's my first one. Ah, well, uh, Well, fundraising is an interesting experience. Yeah, I did it for Ohio. I didn't actually like get the capital, but I did get someone to sign and notarize that they would give it to me if I won this license. And that was 3 million. So that gave me a lot of hope for myself that I can raise capital. (laughs) Like... I basically raised it. We didn't get that license, but if we had gotten the lottery pull, I would have raised the capital. I had uh-huh. it. <laughs> so. Yeah. It takes energy. It takes a great story. Yeah. And it takes the total confidence in what you have and who you are and what you're doing. So you got this. Got yeah. Yeah. You're all right. I'd be so excited to come back and talk with you. This has been so fun. It has been. It's been super fun. All right. And I will put all your info in the show notes. Everybody can check it out there and find out everything they want to know about you and leaf sheets and can strategy and all that good stuff. (laughs) And thank you so much for hanging out today. It's been great. Thank you. It has been great. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. And today I am happy to bring on the show Juliana Whitney. Juliana is president of Can Strategy, a cannabis business strategy firm, and the co-founder of Leaf Sheets, a cannabis business support platform for entrepreneurs. 
Juliana earned both her MBA and bachelor's degrees from University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and she remains in Vegas and interacts with a multitude of companies nationwide. Juliana, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> sure. We had a couple mishaps along the way, but we're finally doing it, and it's 420, yeah. so I guess that's really appropriate. It's meant to be. <laughs> meant to be. <laughs> cool. So let's dive right in. I really enjoy the, the metaphor of people talking about with the gold rush, the people that made all the picks and shovels were the ones that made all the money. And so with the cannabis industry, they're calling it the green rush. Yeah. But we're starting to see all these ancillary companies that are more on the digital side of things that mm-hmm. maybe they're the ones that are really holding it down for us. So how did you end up going into this side of the industry? I got into the side of the industry. It's actually really funny you say the picks and shovels thing because my business partner in Leaf Sheets, Nick, always says that. He's like, we're building the shovels. <laughs> yeah. what he always says. <laughs> um, I got into the ancillary side. It's just, I started out in a dispensary. That's how I got into the industry at all. And I was working front desk and it was Vegas and I was learning everything you know, brand new medical market and meeting all the executives because they were their own sales teams at that time. And um, I was getting my MBA and I just love business theory. I love reading about business and how it works, its mechanisms, what works, what doesn't like historical data on. I just love it. And I think that just feeds kind of directly into an ancillary service. Um that especially that focuses on, you know, tweaking companies. So that's essentially what can strategy does. And that what leaf sheets does is I just help, you know, kind of apply all this information, data theory, these concepts and apply them to make things work better. And let's see if you can compete better and be cooler and like succeed long-term, you know? And uh, I, I mean, how I actually did it was I was working at the front desk of a dispensary, decided I wanted to become a consultant, was getting my MBA, just asked this executive if I could try to open his dispensary. He said yes. Because <laughs> at that point in Vegas, working at the front desk at a dispensary was basically being an expert in Vegas at dispensary operations, like, cause no one had done it. So he said, sure, you can open it. And, uh, I did. And then I just left the dispensary and have been consulting ever since it's been up and down. It wasn't just a, you know, skyrocketing, but <laughs> yeah, it's not ever a straight line, is it? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but that's how it started. It was kind of crazy. I tell people like, I don't think that I would do it. I wouldn't tell someone else to do it the way I did it. I literally left. I was making, I had no income. I didn't leave with a paying client. I left with no clients and just was like, I'm going to go do this now. (laughs) (laughs) Lost my health insurance, didn't have an income, was like, this is going to work. And it did, but I would not advise going that route. Right. The whole burn the ships route. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah. it was. I was like, this is fine crazy a crazy, crazy person well there's a little bit of craziness involved with even <laughs> jumping into the cannabis industry right you have to be like a, some kind of activist on some level just to even want to do it yeah you have to be some kind of something i've been thinking about that <laughs> recently like just sitting here thinking wow this industry i think 
entrepreneurship business generally is difficult. It's, it's a lot of work, you know? And then this industry is like a special breed of nuts because it's always changing and which is really cool about it, but also just nuts. And then people are cuckoo. People are like so anxious, so excited, but so anxious. And some trying to do really good and some trying to be shady. And it's like, this is madness. (laughs) This is madness. It is. I agree. You have to be a little crazy to be like, oh, I think I'm going to partake in this like not yet totally solidified industry. Yeah. Not at all. But they they say what? You're building the airplane as we're flying it? Oh, it feels like that at least. Oh, it is that. It is that. Yeah. And then the airplane keeps changing directions. The flight plan keeps right. <laughs> turbulence. So, so much turbulence. Yeah. <laughs> like everything. Oh yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> but it's fun. So that seems like the perfect invitation for somebody who's getting a master's degree in business studies, right? Business yeah. administration to be able to apply that to this crazy nascent industry. And, and so it became very obvious to me as I was going through the, the can strategy and the leaf sheets sites and seeing what's going on there. I was like, Oh, this woman definitely went to business school. Because <laughs> it, it, it was so thorough and so complete and in so many different ways. It was very impressive by the way. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, that for sure. So, I mean, it's so, okay. So you're jumping across. So you go directly from a dispensary front desk to starting your own business. And so was this your first dalliance into entrepreneurship as well? No, my first ever was I was seven years old and I started a restaurant in the front yard. Cool. That was my first. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, my next actually was I did this. um, Well, I started a nonprofit organization when I was 24 23 or 24. And it was for girls in foster care. And I kept telling people, everyone makes money and then they turn 50 or 60 and decide they want to be philanthropic. And then they become all charitable. I'm flipping the script. You know, this was my narrative. Um, I'm going to do it first. I think that, so I did, that's what I did. That was my first, like, let me try and run this thing gave me an immense respect for people in nonprofit work. That is hot. That is diff- That is a hustle. Like I've never <laughs> seen. And then the next was my friend Liza and I started something called J and L inspire. And we would do these inspirational videos. I mean, I wish TikTok was around. We would have slayed TikTok. Like, <laughs> slayed. So you do these inspirational videos twice a week and then like go get, speeches and we were just kind of trying to figure out what the heck we were doing but we knew we both are very into like mindset and inspiring people and this kind of thing and through that we got a business consulting client called my vegas magazine and they paid us to come in and essentially like inspire their staff and try and increase you know improve the company culture and and then of course they implemented like 0.2 percent of anything we told them to do but that was my intro into consulting which i think then is why i thought oh i could apply consulting to cannabis oh yeah Yeah. for sure yeah sure so some of the things that stood out for me so with can strategy you talk about profitable purposeful and primed i like the alliteration of course but um right it's great so the purposeful that must come from some of your old 
ventures with the the mindset and that kind of coaching and I'm a huge believer in purpose and I am always trying to figure out how to walk the line between cuz I'm also not the person that's like, you know, oh corporations are evil, business is evil. I believe in profit, you know, I believe in money, I like it. <laughs> but I also don't believe in the business that Um, makes people feel like if you have employees that can't live good lives, I don't think you're a good business. I don't think you should exist. Um, Because one of the purposes of business is to feed the world and to support it and not just via charity, but like through good jobs and through good services and good products, you know? And yeah, so a lot of the purpose part comes from that mindset stuff. And it's purposeful to be personally fulfilling, but also purposeful to be like societally fulfilling and um, for your teams and stuff. Yeah, for sure. And cannabis is one of those products that does serve a very large purpose in so many different ways. It really does. And I actually fell in love with that when I was at the front desk because I'm not a big consumer. I consume can I probably consume like psychedelics more than I consume cannabis actually. Cool. We'll talk about that later. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wasn't a huge part of the culture before I started um, at the dispensary. And so I was meeting all these customers and just seeing like the emotional attachment that people have to the product and the emotional impact it has on their lives and how serious they are about what cannabis products they have, because it really matters to them. You know, like my water, I really like good water, but if it's okay, water, like I'm fine. It's like, it's not, I'm not that crazy about it. You know, I'm not. Um, and it doesn't emotionally affect me. Like it doesn't change my experience in the world, but cannabis does, you have to get the right product. And so seeing how intimate that relationship was with the products and the consumer, that fascinates me. I'm like, oh, this is a whole other level of like consumer good and interaction and medicine and all of it. Yeah. It sits at this weird intersection of culture because Mm -hmm. it is medicine. We're slowly being able to understand that as we get to study it more, which I can't believe we haven't been able to do for this whole time, Yeah, but it's, but it's also a product and it's a consumer good at the same time. And that's very unique in our culture. There's not a lot of that that happens. No, it's so unique because even if you sit and think about the parallels that people draw, which are always with alcohol and with pharmaceuticals, it just doesn't come out a one-to-one parallel. It's just not just quite the same, you know, because with alcohol, you've got, yeah, you know, I guess it's controlled and it, it changes your state of mind. Not super medicinal, pretty harmful. It's like, <laughs> like a whole other kind of experience and product. And yes, each one has a different impact on each person, but barely different. And it's like barely, you know, sure your alcohol tolerance might be higher, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> Your alcohol tolerance might be higher, but not, no one has, okay, so my, what's your milligram tolerance? My milligram tolerance? Oh, I don't even know. Okay. I, I've, I've never tested it by milligram. Okay. I'm so old my, school. <laughs> I have like a five to 10 milligram, like, okay, I'm good and functioning tolerance. That's my good place, right? 
And then I know people with a thousand. Wow. Like they didn't take a th- that's so different. A thousand? A thousand I I can't Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like that's a wild. Um, and so alcohol is not like that, you know? And then with pharmaceuticals, you don't have the same like cool bond with it as a medicine. You're not as happy to take it. It's not like this enjoyable, fun experience. <laughs> like so there, I, you're right in that it's a unique, it's just unique because there's not a direct kind of parallel in terms of products or medicines. Yeah. Well, and right the, just like you said, I mean, a thousand milligram tolerance is ridiculous for a lot of reasons, but one oh is that gosh. you're not going to overdose, which is crazy. Yeah. You're going to, I mean, alcohol, you can get poisoned pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Yeah. Pharmaceuticals, you can overdose. I mean, thousands of people die from alcohol every day. And zero people have died from cannabis. Just zero. Yeah. So, yeah. Plus, it's fun. Like, (laughs) sometimes fun, but alcohol can become a bad time pretty fast. But cannabis is so fun. It's pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah. So, that's a bonus. Yeah. About the worst thing that'll happen is you might get really quiet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Oh, I have done that. I have. Thousand percent. One time I got so quiet, my friend looked at me and she said, You're never smoking again. <laughs> she was so annoyed. <laughs> like, never again. That's funny. That's good. Okay. So, okay. We're going back into care strategy now. Okay. Um, so, I saw on there that you've provided solutions for a number of different states. And I live in Ohio now, to where I grew up, but I just moved back here after like 20 years away. And so I saw that you've done some work in Ohio. What drew you here? How did that happen? What did you do? Tell me more, please. My first ever paying client was in Ohio. All right. Yeah. And they were, they applied for cultivation. We did not win. It taught me a lot, Mm -hmm. including, I'm going to tell you two key things I learned. (laughs) One, do not work. So I worked with a security company to do the security plan. Because the client said, oh, there's this security company we're going to work with. They can help you with the security plan. And I was like, oh, great. No, disaster, disastrous. I did not vet enough. Like, have you ever written plans like this before? <laughs> like, how good are you? Uh, yeah. um, and then the other thing I learned was how to write more competitively. So Ohio taught me like so much about how to, because they have this thing called the sunshine law, some sunshine rule, something like that, essentially that they have to show all information that's submitted. So they posted all of the applications in 2017 when they announced the winners and I downloaded them all. So I got like Caroleaf and GTI and everyone who back then was like, they were smaller, you know? So, um, but I downloaded all their stuff and I just reverse engineered it and I, (laughs) I like learned so much. Um, but then I worked there this past year too in Ohio. Cool. Where in Ohio? In Cleveland. So we applied in Columbus, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. Uh-huh. And they had a lottery. I'm sure you know, but there was yeah. a lottery and they're still doing review and stuff. But we got pulled top lottery in Cincinnati. Okay, cool. So that's exciting. But I was actually, um, my biological family is from Ohio. So I used to go there for Christmas. Oh, no, that's cool. Very <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm in Cleveland. So I, awesome. I grew up in the Burbs and I get to live in the city now. It's a whole different place than it was when I grew up. So this is cool. It's a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it's got a cool vibe. 
I like it. Yeah, it's kind of rootsy. I'm like, this is good. <laughs> yeah. Soulful people, no pretension. I'm like, this is good. I could do this. And you can eat. I'm like, I feel like, because I'm in Vegas, you know? Vegas is like LA standards. You've got to be just fit. So I'm like always thinking about what I'm eating. But I'm like in Ohio, I seem so fit. And I'm like, <laughs> I just, this is great. I <laughs> Oh my god, eat all the food and I'm still among the smallest people in the state. Yeah. Look at me. Pretty true. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty true. <laughs> Standards are different. Like, They're a little different. It's kind of nice. You can just chill. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So is that how you ended up creating leaf sheets? Was because of all the different barriers that you found and and ran into? Because yeah. it seems like it's a pretty useful service just to offer these one-off sheets for people to be able to use for their businesses. Yeah. So, okay. I haven't found a ton of people that see have gone about like the consulting route in the same way that I have. I find a lot of people usually like hone in on a state where I immediately went, like, I want to figure this out at every state. I want to know all of them. And I want to understand the differences and the similarities and, like, the trajectory. Where do the lawsuits? Like, I just want to understand, like, basically the chessboard of each state, you know, and become part of it. And so then I started to see similarities in, you know, everyone says, oh, the regulations are so different in every state, but there's actually a lot that's very similar, mm -hmm. very similar. And they might ask it, it say in your application, they may ask the question differently, or they may piece different things together in your waste management plan or, you know, security plan, or just decide different things go in different places. Um, but there's a lot of similarities. So <laughs> after having, uh, I think it was like, six years of doing this. And along the way, I've definitely met a bunch of people who want to get into the industry um, and don't have the, you know, consulting firm funding or big fancy law firm funding and are pretty smart though and have good ideas, you know? So I figured, okay, if I can take what I know, if I can figure out how to do something that can teach people how to approach this process, um, and kind of take the documents and make them so they can be applied and tweaked for each state, then we have a product, you know? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of so, reminds me of LegalZoom. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's most, yeah, most similar to LegalZoom. And we have the DIY guides, which were really important to me because I've actually had I, this actually happened while we were building leaf sheets is that I had this law firm called Fox Rothschild. They sent me multiple Illinois dispensary applicants who had failed, but had 10 days to fix their application to be able to be part of the lottery. And two of them had the same template. I didn't tell them that I wouldn't have known it was a template if two of them hadn't had it. So I'm looking at one. Oh, cool. Cool. The other one, I was like, why is this exactly the same? Like they both have this navy blue. They like, what, what is this? Well, the, they both got this template. They both failed. And they, because they hadn't been told how to customize it, they hadn't been given any guidance. They were just handed this thing. And that was that not told to put regulations in it, nothing, which then even doubled down my belief in leaf sheets, you know, but it's why like the DIY guides are so important to me because 
templates, you know, if you don't know what to do with it, it's kind of useless, you know, if it's not like yeah. totally complete. So yeah, that's where I got the idea partly from experience, but I had it really early on actually, because I believe that this licensing process is artificially valuable. Like right now you can charge a lot in a state because the state's only giving out X amount of licenses or, you know, whatever, or let's say even New Jersey, it's not that they're limiting licenses right now, but municipalities are limited so much. So you have to understand how to navigate that and do all that stuff. Right. Which makes can strategy licensing service valuable one day. I think more states will probably, it could go two ways. It could go away that more states are like Oklahoma and are like easy peasy. Well, then the licensing service, not valuable mm-hmm. at all, really. You know, then you just need leaf sheets. Right. If it goes that way. <laughs> sure, it's true. Um, Speaking of side checking here, but I saw on the different, I was checking out the different states and everything on the leaf sheet site. And Oklahoma said it has 2,080 dispensaries. Is that a real number? Yeah. Like, how is that possible? I might have to go update it. So they have, um, I don't know that those are all actually open. Right. But, but that's the amount of licenses for dispensaries they have? Yeah. So they didn't limit it. And the cost to apply is very low. It's like $2,500. And what you have to have to apply is almost nothing. Like you need to have your proof of residency and your like ID passport, fingerprinting, all of that kind of thing, your location, your location distance, but you don't have to have all your plans in place. Wow. So wow. they have almost no barriers. <laughs> so wow. they're just like wild licensed out the wazoo. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy. They got they went a little extreme with the let's put almost no rules here. <laughs> it's not going well, but yeah. So so how did you build your team for for both companies? Because I noticed that you were doing strategy for cultivation centers, for processing centers, for dispensaries, and yeah. I mean you have personal experience working at a dispensary. But yeah. how did you figure all that other out for all the other parts of the industry? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so I, anytime we do cultivation or pro- production or processing or if you, whatever, whatever state wants to call it, but that sector, it's so funny. That's like the one that everyone says differently. Whereas the other two, we basically have the same terms. Anyways, anytime I do either of those two, I find a lot of times I'll 1099 consultants cause I don't have full time. Like I don't have full time, um, like work for them right now. So I always have my people that I work with that do processing specifically or that specifically know cultivation um, and we'll work with them on those projects. The documents, so like all the SOPs and you know everything you need for an application, I actually learned that. So what I found was I um, in Ohio, actually, this happened. We partnered with an existing cultivator. Well, actually, the first ever um, dispensary we opened, they had a cultivation and production facility. So we partnered them with the Ohio client, and we had them help us write all the SOPs. Well, what we found was growers and like you know lab guys 
don't like writing SOPs. They don't like it. And if you try to get them to do it, they're also not great at it because they're that's not their thing. They do this other thing, you know? And so I developed this method of like sitting them down and grilling them till they want to basically punch me in the face and ask them every detail, of like every move they make. And then I write the SOPs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I figured that part out. But I always have someone who actually knows the process. Yeah, that's good. Good. Yeah, I could see that. Growers are, they're scientists, they're botanists, they're engineers. Like you have to be pretty. They're hands on. They're like, hello, I don't want to (laughs) write this out. They're like, I don't know what I do. I just do it. I'm like, okay. Right. I'll write it down. (laughs) I can show you a flow chart of how the clones get to the flower room and over time, but yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. That was an interesting lesson. I was like, okay, got it. Got it. Yeah. But yeah, that's how we do that. And then. Um, in terms of a lot of times with the cultivators and the, uh, processors, we'll just work on like their branding, their brand representations, like build them, uh, teams of brand reps, build their sales deck, help them with their website, like restructure the way they're, what the consumer finds, they look them up, restructure their relationships with dispensaries. They can actually have a sell through rate in the dispensaries. Um, help them with that kind of thing because a lot of times they're so just focused on but we have a really good product and it's like that doesn't matter if you can't sell it <laughs> yeah that's, I mean, that's where we're at it's like a legitimate business now i started as a medical cultivator in california in 2004 yeah. so i got to see the whole industry rise and back in those days like if we got clones of something that we weren't sure what it was you made up a name and then I took it to the dispensary. And like that, yeah. That was it. Like, Here it is. Here it is. Yeah. We're like, we don't know what this is. Surprise. We, we had one show. I was like, what are we going to call this? Like, I don't know. I was like, how about LaCron James? They're like, yeah, try it. I took it and they loved it. They thought, I don't, I mean, it was, yeah. a, it was a fairly decent product, but the name was good. And they were just like, bring as much as you can. I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks. That's amazing. I love those stories. I always wonder about what it was like to be part of that kind of thing. Because yeah, when I hear was... some of the names, I'm like, what? Yeah, I mean, that, that's <laughs> so that much is. of it is made up. Because, I mean, so back then, in <laughs> the mid-2000s, you could go to the dispensaries, you can get clones. But oftentimes, it was like, this guy came in from Tahoe, and he had this killer plant, but he wasn't sure what the lineage was. You're like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. Take it to the dispensary. They love it. Great. Make yeah. It up. So much, so much is just made up. Wow. And even some of the lineages that have carried forward have come from just made up strains. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, well, I don't know what this is. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty fun. <laughs> fun. Yeah. Really fun. Really fun. Fun yeah. to be on this side of things now, though. It got, it got yeah. wild. It got really intense and heavy. And it's like, okay, cool. Let me, let me jump out of that arena and come build some shovels and picks. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> let's do this instead. This is a little less dangerous. Cause didn't like California get kind of dangerous. It still gets dangerous. There's still a ton of robberies and yeah. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It, it remains dangerous. I mean, it, until the banking laws change, the whole industry is going to be dangerous, which is yeah. an issue. Yeah, totally. Do you have to mess with any of the 280E stuff or because you're non-plant touching, you're cool? Um, my personal businesses are fine. Yeah. 
People just keep texting me all day today. I'm usually not this popular. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My actual, so leaf sheets and can strategy are fine because it's not plant touching. But uh, with clients, I definitely have to kind of help them walk through it. I always get them a cannabis specific accountant because I'm like, I don't know specifically, you know, but it's one of the biggest shocks to them sometimes if they haven't looked into it that much and they're kind of just coming to me and saying, I want to get into the industry, I've got money, but they've not done research past that, you know, Um, the tax thing. They're always like, there's no way. There's no way that's true. (laughs) Yeah, that's how it works. (laughs) They're like, how do you make money? I'm like, that's the big joke. Everyone (laughs) thinks we're all making (laughs) That's the, don't you get it? And then they're like entering the fun house, like <laughs> all the mirrors, like what's going on? Yeah. And like, yeah, it's pretty. That, it's a criminal yeah. shakedown as far as I'm concerned. I, mean, it, yeah. I don't see any difference between that and the mafia that would go storefront to storefront collecting their dues. I mean, yeah. but what, what's the difference really? Yeah. And that's, I hope it doesn't work that way for too long because I think that is part of what then creates business is doing some shady things because they're trying to escape the pressure and limits they're put under. Um, especially if they get in a weird financial spot, you know, yeah. and then what happens, they get in trouble because compl- and it's just like feeds itself. <laughs> it's a whole kind of chaos. Yeah. The, and it's, it's so complicated just from state to state and depending on the maturity of the industry there, like an ounce in Michigan is a hundred dollars right now. But yeah. if you want to get an ounce in Ohio, it's going to be about $300. And, and that's, I mean, you could take one step and be from Ohio to Michigan at, at some places in Ohio and Michigan. Right. But it just depends on the maturity of the industry. It depends on the tax structures. It depends on how many dispensaries are there, how many cultivation licenses. And are you running yeah. into any of those kinds of difficulties from state to state? In terms of... Oh, in terms of um, educating the client on what it's going to take to be profitable. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, It is interesting how it's different from state to state in that. So we always have to do a financial plan. And just the difference in like, okay, well, what's a, you know, wholesale? What are the wholesale prices? That completely changes your entire game. (laughs) It could take you from like, we make money to, we make no money. Like there's no money or, and then that like, um, you know, impacts the consumer because then it's like, okay, well, if you're at this price, you only have so much of a willingness to pay before they're just going to buy from their dealer still, you know, or find one if they really want to. Uh, so yeah, it definitely is. It's interesting to help clients. And then also I'll help people find, uh, places to acquire and I will help in doing that. I have a lot of people let's say from outside of Vegas who are, who want to own something in Vegas. That's like one example, but they just don't understand because they look at Vegas and they're like, ah, like most profitable, you know, this is crazy. And it probably will be like that. But actually, like so many people are struggling. Um, I'm like helping people understand here's how you're going to compete. Like you can't just own something here. 
that's one of the biggest things, which is so silly because competition is a normal business practice. It is a well-known, you know, industry across the board, wherever you're at, any kind of business, you got to compete, you know, even if you're selling candy at school and (laughs) you've got to have the better candy and, um, kind of helping them figure out, well, how do I even compete on this product and who's my consumer and how do I reach them? And like all those things, how do you do deal mixes and like figuring that out? Yeah. I saw that that's a component, yeah. like a matchmaking component to what you do too. Yeah. I like to call it matchmaking. It feels like matchmaking. It's mm-hmm. very emotional. <laughs> very sure. emotional. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. Getting those deals, like, Matching a buyer and a seller um, for an actual business. It's so funny because they they both always have, which I imagine matchmakers deal with. They both always have, they're like, well, I'm not doing this. This is where I draw the line. <laughs> and then they're like, well, I have to have this before I'll even meet them. And it's just like all of that, you know? Yeah, sure. It's so funny. And the emotion yeah. involved with entrepreneurs, if they're going to sell, I mean, that, that's their baby. That's yeah. tough. Yeah. And no one, I find that people are worried about getting almost like they don't want to be embarrassed because I think a lot of them don't actually know what their business is worth. And they're not sure what other people in their market have actually gotten because there's always all these rumors about, oh, this company got $50 million for XYZ, you know, but then you know, if you don't look into that deal, you don't know that it was 75% stock, you know, <laughs> like you've got to look into that. So then people run around like, well, I want 50 million cash because they got 50 million, but they didn't get 50 million cash. So it's like all that kind of thing. No one wants to be the one that's kind of duped and gets bought out without, you know, having really made it worth it. Oh, for sure. For There's sure. all of that. Yeah. The, the balloon devaluations and it's, oh man. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's not made up. They're just also they're just made up. Oh yeah, I mean some of the big Canadian companies like the Tilray and Canopy. I mean they have been in the red for years, quarter after quarter after quarter. They're losing tens of millions of dollars, and okay, you know CEOs are still making thirty, forty million a year. I don't know how that works, but it's a weird industry. Oh, totally. I love I love looking at those big companies because business theory, you know? Yeah. I love that they are feel okay saying they're that valuable being as young as they are. Um, which because it's not tech. That's one of the biggest reasons I find it so funny. Like a lot of the behaviors in cannabis are emulating technology and it is not the same. I'm like technology is technology. They're doing things like you know, creating platforms that have never existed and who knows what else, you know, this is scalable. Technology is infinitely scalable, infinitely scalable. It's genuinely changing. Like it could, I mean, Facebook changed the world, you know, you could like genuinely change things um, and make something that doesn't exist. The important thing I think with cannabis is like focus on making really good products. This is a product and it's existed for, it's a plant. It's been around, make really good products. But so many people are, it seems, wanna approach it like they've reinvented the wheel, they've reinvented business. None of this has ever been done before. <laughs> and like, it's just so weird. And then they have these giant valuations with like 
all this uncertainty, which is one of my favorite parts, is like their valuations are based on the future when the future is so wildly unpredictable. And so I'm like, cool, do that. But at the same time, I would just wish I could talk to investors and be like, are you serious? Like, you're really not evaluating this further. You're really just going to be like, sure. Yeah, it's a big gamble. Uh, part of any sales pitch for any company is like, oh, yeah, well, it's going to be legal in the States in the next five years for sure. So we're good. That's why you can look at us like a billion-dollar company. It's like, that's, that's a big gamble. It's not even legal medically federally. So like, the, yeah. the thing that it's going to go legal from some kind of adult use perspective is it's a massive gamble. Oh, and I, there's so much to it. It's like, oh, and then it could go the route of, wreck or it could go the route of becoming a very pharmaceutical thing like there's so many ways this whole thing could merge that i'm like i mean it's a lot of fun to do and i think this is where purpose comes in that a lot of the big guys are just building as much as they can they'll get i saw it in ohio locations just to get locations that you would never have a retail location some of the spots that are on that list that got pulled at the top ridiculous. You would never see anyone put a retail location in these places, but they like fit the parameters. They were not intentional. Whereas with my clients, I don't care. I don't care if we need a spot. We're not applying on a shitty spot. Yeah. It's not happening just to have a spot. No. Well, cause of all the, what the regulations around how far you have to be from schools and how yeah. close you need Churches. to be. To, yeah. 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 But it's like, man, what was I? I don't even know what I was reading. I was reading something, but I guess essentially my point is it's great to build a large company, but definitely do it intentionally. And I think a lot of these big guys, like ones you just mentioned, are not doing that. They're just like, you know, strong fisted and like throwing stuff together, speaking big words, very loudly, all confidently. (laughs) And they're like, look what I made. (laughs) I'm making a thing. And it's like, are you? I don't know. (laughs) I I got to interview Adam Bierman a couple months ago, which was really cool. And he he genuinely did make a big shift in the industry because when he brought MedBen out, it it went from these little kind of, I don't know, shitty little hippie joints was what the dispensaries were and he was like nah he made it an apple store it was beautiful and gorgeous and took it across the country and became a a billion dollar valuated company it's crazy which totally changed how all dispensaries act from there forward so that's pretty cool but also it was all a lot of smoke and mirrors and kind of fell apart totally which i always have some kind of like um I would, by the way, I remember when they did their big raise and I had just started in the industry and I called it. I was like, nope, <laughs> that's going to go wrong. I just knew it. But there's always something in people. So he's not like Theranos, let's say, but mm. there's something <laughs> magical about those people though, because like let's say even if the story of MedMen, even if people look at him and think, oh, that went wrong, but you're right. He did make a change in the industry. He shifted this mindset and just moved really fast and was like, let's see what we can do. And honestly, MedMen still has a good name. It does. Not a, in the industry, people know things went wrong, but consumers have no idea. 
consumers still think men men is cool and great and you know they have no clue truly i mean they still have their storefront <laughs> on fifth avenue you know they're, yeah. they're doing it yeah yeah so i yeah but yeah definitely one that built something very big very fast mm-hmm. and you know being mindful can help out in those situations yeah yeah, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit, right? Totally. So I have an entrepreneur buddy. He's a second-generation entrepreneur, and he was like, an MBA is the fast track to middle management. So he he doesn't know any entrepreneurs with an MBA. He doesn't think it's a good idea to get one if you actually want to be an entrepreneur. What have you seen among your classmates, and what gave you the courage to say, screw all that, I'm going to branch out on my own? Um. So my blind confidence gave me the courage to say screw cool. <laughs> this kind of just gets me through life, you know, <laughs> just don't question it. Um, my classmates, a lot of them actually were already middle managers and they were getting their MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to get mine because I have always been entrepreneurial my entire life. I also know that there's limitations in the way that I naturally am entrepreneurial in that there was a lot of structure and technical things that I wanted to know and that I didn't want to learn the hard way. I think a lot of stuff is really cool to learn the hard way, but learning accounting the hard way, not super fun, not fun. Um, You know, time value of money. I'd rather learn that in a book from a professor. So there were things like that, that, I wanted to learn in a structured way. (laughs) Um, And I, that's what I told my dad. My dad was so mad that I wanted to get my MBA because my undergrads are sociology and communications. So he was like, why are you not still going with liberal arts? You know? And I said, I've always been into business. I told you that. And I just don't want to have to learn everything in the school of hard knocks because I'm going to learn most things there, you know? Um, but yeah, most of the people, I think I know one other, one or two other people in my whole class that were entrepreneurial at all. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, I don't think it's the fast track to middle management. I think it's like kind of for middle management, <laughs> 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 no, but it's actually not middle management. Any executive you see, even at the largest of companies, they all have MBAs. Yeah. So it's really for corporate. It's, it's, it's a very fast track to corporate, you know? That makes sense. Um, and yeah, it's interesting because people will say things like, ugh, MBAs. My dad will say it. And my mom will be like, Juliana's an MBA. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I forget. But, um, but you, I, see, you were able to apply it directly to oh, your businesses. I always, like constantly, I value getting that degree so much and Uh, it's interesting because I'll be in meetings or conversations, even with people I like work side by side with, and they're very entrepreneurial and went a hundred percent, you know, just grit. And, um, there will be conversations we have (laughs) that they're learning something or kind of seeing something. And I know in my head, like I read a case study about this or like, okay, well, there's actually a lot of data that this happens in businesses or that kind of thing where it's like, oh, I know that this has happened before. It will happen again. It tends to happen. Here's how you approach it. So it gave me that kind of information that it's like, not everything is new, you know? 
<laughs> I can see how that'd be very helpful. Yeah. I started a, a few different businesses and uh, the one brick and mortar business that I did was crazy. Like I didn't know at all what to do. I walk into city hall. I was like, please point me somewhere. And yeah. you need this form. It's like, great. Where do I get that? Oh, you have to go to this government building that's all the way across town. Okay, go there. It's like, oh, but you didn't go here first? No, I didn't. Oh my God. It was yeah. just months and months of just running around at different places trying to find the right paperwork that I didn't know that existed until I spoke to the person that told me that I had to have it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, so it's actually funny you say that though, the entrepreneurial rhetoric of don't get a degree, essentially like degrees are useless. is so funny to me. Um, because I see what people mean, but I definitely, I was raised by two college professors. So I obviously cannot stand in the, you know, the school of thought of degrees are useless, but I do get why they get a bad rap. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a master's degree in consciousness. So it's like, meh, I don't know what that has to do with business, except for the fact that I get to inter intercommunicate with different people in ways yeah. that other people may not, because I know the history of philosophy and Western thought, you know, so that's helpful, I guess. That's amazing. But, but you're good at critical thinking and you can probably tie events together. It right. gives you strategic it, thing. It's like, it helps with that. Picture. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's about the bigger picture. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, changing gears again. So you had mentioned your biological parents, and I saw that you have another nonprofit, right? The that adopted girl. Yeah, the one nonprofit that adopted girl. That adopted girl, and so that was. So were you a foster? I don't know if you want to get into it or not, but I'm curious about that story too. Oh, I'll get into it. <laughs> I was not a foster kid. I was adopted at birth. So my parents in the room with my birth parents when I was born and I had an open adoption. So I grew up knowing my birth dad and my birth mom and I knew my birth dad better. So I'd see him more often and uh, they kind of integrated my parents and I into their family. So we would do Christmases together and stuff. Um, and then when I was like 23, I wound up wanting to write a book. I should still write that book. I never finished that book. Um, so I wanted to write a book. I started writing it. I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book from the perspective of an adopted kid, but not from like a highly abused perspective or an overly optimistic, mushy, gushy, like you were born in my heart, not in my stomach. Because they say stuff like that. <laughs> the adoption platforms. And it drives me crazy because when I was 12, I had a total emotional breakdown, total. And it all had to do with my adoption and like figuring out that piece of me. And then I was put in therapy on the spot. Like my mom put me in therapy basically immediately. And I like worked through it. And I had this really cool chance to work through that with professionals, which not a lot of kids get that chance, you know? So after like working through those wounds and kind of understanding the complexities and the impacts that adoption actually has on kids, even if they're adopted on the day they're born, mm -hmm. I wanted to write about it. And then as I was writing about it, I started a blog as well because I thought, Oh, I'll market the book through the blog. I'll build an audience. You know, that blog started to get comments from adults who'd been adopted as kids talking about all kinds of stuff. Um, a lot of how they didn't get, you know, 
how they were treated in foster care, how they never got to talk about their adoption with their adoptive parents and stuff like that. So then the blog was called That Adopted Girl. And because I just, this is the way I especially did things then, I just took the name, I figured out how to incorporate a 501c3, did it myself, and just turned the blog name into a nonprofit name and ran with it and started working with girls in foster care from ages 12 to 18. And talking to them like about self-worth and stuff, because that was my big struggle. It was like you gave me away. What was my what am I worthless? Mm-hmm. No? Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. I I've have a running theory about humans and and our weird attachments to emotions and stories and things like that because there's a lot of virtue signaling and shame around rescue dogs right and so yep. like if you go and you get a purebred dog so you're going to get shamed by people and because right. you, sh- you need to go to a, a shelter to get rescue dogs and there are a lot of children that need well rescuing but adoption right yeah. i mean different term obviously but there's so many different psychological things that go along with it. The, the, the upbringing that they had, the bouncing around from foster home to foster home or just a group home or whatever it might be. And it's yeah. complicated, huh? Oh, it's complicated. I say if you're not, I say this about having children also, but <laughs> if you're not really drawn to it naturally, don't do it just because you think it's a good idea. Like, because. I know I had all these emotional struggles my parents had to deal with, and I didn't come from foster care. I literally, they got me brand new, you know, and I still like, had these things. So then it's, you you know, then you add experiencing trauma, um, neglect, abuse, or foster care, whatever, to that. You have to really be willing to do it, you know? Yeah. It's no joke. It's a great thing to do. Yeah, it's beautiful. Broke my heart when I first learned about the foster industry. It's so, yeah, Uh, it's it's disturbing. It's It's, madness. It's disturbing. My biggest things with that adopted girl was that I know trying to say like I'm. People would say, "Oh, she's an adoption advocate," in like articles and stuff. And I said, "I'm not an adoption advocate. I'm not. I'm just a like there's." hundreds of thousands of kids in the foster care system every single year, all of whom are going to grow up into functioning adults in our society. So instead of acting like they're not there and leaving them in the hands of who knows, you know, what families or the system, like if we could at least pay attention, understand they're there and do anything at all to try and provide support while they're there and like uplift them and give them resources then that will at least benefit society positively moving forward. You know, I'm not trying to tell everyone to like adopt a child, but you, it's very easy to like donate clothes or to go and do tutoring or to, you know, I don't know, sponsor pizza party or whatever. That's easy. And make them know, like people know you're there. You're not invisible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So. So this might be a stretch of a segue, but um, cannabinoid medicine and mental health, do you, yeah. do you see any bridge there? Any way that there might be utilization within the, the foster care 
world of sorts with I'm mean, obviously not THC because that's not a good idea for kids but right <laughs> but there's been a lot of promise around the other minor cannabinoids yeah I think that uh I've actually had this conversation with uh this woman who runs this really cool organization called St. Jude's Ranch and they have uh kids in foster care but they're like more highly troubled kids and it's this ranch and like all these kids live there and the parents live there it's this whole thing I was telling her I've always tried to do things that have cannabis companies raise money for kids in foster care I tried to do this back like I think before I even got into the industry and people are always like you're trying to tie kids to weed I'm like, no, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to tie money to nonprofits. That's all I'm trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I told her, I was like, you know, kids in foster care have PTSD at a rate higher than veterans. They have, almost all of them have PTSD. Um, they're so abused and so neglected. Yeah. And in, you know, so I do think that there's a tie there when they're kids, maybe like CBD and stuff like that, just a lot of them are anxious, <laughs> just anxious. Yeah. Uh, but when they're older, I think there's probably going to be a lot of therapeutic use for these kids to help deal with their PTSD, you know, um, and to not, but be just put on opioids and stuff like that to not just be put on pharmaceuticals a lot of those kids are there because of opioids by the way i try to tie that too i'm like you realize cannabis is part of like it really all ties together because like it just ties together you know because like opioid use increased the amount of kids in foster care it really did yeah cannabis reduced opioid use and reduce that it ultimately like relieves the burden on the foster care system um and then so that is like kind of a roundabout way that i I think that they tie together but then i think yeah directly too as a therapy for these kids like when they're old enough to consume thc and cannabis generally as a whole plant that um that it'll be useful and i hope that they're given the resources to know about it. So they're not just put on a bunch of pills, like right out of care, you know, cause they, and it's PTSD, but yeah, like other mental illness stuff. And, um, they have a lot of it, you know, yeah, a lot of it. Depression. <laughs> um, so psychedelics, I mean, all, there's so much research going on right now, treatment resistant depression and the incredible breakthroughs we're having with psilocybin around that and then PTSD, MDMA is working better than anything ever has in the history of anybody trying anything. So, yeah. yeah. I, I you, love you mentioned that you're into psychedelics. <laughs> what, what was your foray in that direction? What was my foray? It wasn't that long ago. It was uh, 2019, I think. So just like three years ago. And... I was leaving my first company, my first consulting firm, because in that one I had business partners and I was like devastated. And that company was called the J Whitney group (laughs) and I had to leave. And uh, I went on just basically like soul searching. I was like, I'm just going to do vision quests. So I was meditating constantly, like meditating, journaling, affirmations, all these things. And decided that I wanted to do ayahuasca 
I was like, I really want to do an ayahuasca ceremony. And I'd been saying that. And then I met a new friend and I told her and I'd never met anyone else who was ever, everyone else had been like, Oh man, that stuff is crazy. You know, that stuff is, Oh no, you puke all this stuff. And I, I'm like, okay, whatever. But she was the first person that said, Oh yeah, I've done it. And I was, Oh my gosh. And so for my 30th birthday, she bought me a ayahuasca ceremony. <laughs> and so that was my first, psychedelic experience and then from that point I just kept diving deeper I was like big fan of psilocybin big fan of LSD and then MDMA I think I've done like one time yeah it's not Um, a traditional psychedelic no and that that one I just talked so much (laughs) (laughs) it was extreme but like psilocybin I love I microdosed relatively frequently. I'm a big fan. I went to Tulum for five weeks last year to do another like, okay, let me get my vision clear here. What's my life strategy to build all my things. And I microdosed like at least three times a week while I was there. I'm saying three is probably three to five (laughs) times a week. Well, they usually don't recommend more than three times a week because you want to be able to reset your receptors. Your whole brain. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was on one in Tulum. Yeah. I was on one, basically. <laughs> I was like, took a break when I got home, you know. But yeah, I'm a big fan. I like big, big fan, and I totally see the benefits, and it's so good. Do you know if they've ever shown anything with psilocybin and memory loss? Oh, I don't know if they have any specific studies around that right now. That's an interesting one. Why? Have you got your memories back? No. So my dad is losing his memory. And I told him, I wonder if he took some psilocybin, if your connectors would like, I don't know, reconnect. He's nervous about it. So I'm trying to do it. Because it actually reduces brain function. It slows everything down. It slows it down? Yes, it does. But doesn't it increase connectivity? It increases connectivity in different ways, but everything slows down also, and it kind of mutes the different the storytelling mechanism that we have, this default mm-hmm. mode network. It yeah. mutes that whole thing so that you're not telling yourself that's whatever stories you might get wrapped up in and allows you to actually create the connections that you might have created as a child seeing things for the first time. So yeah. that way it might work. I don't know. I bet it wouldn't it hurt. It wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Try. <laughs> Try. Yeah. That's impressive. You went straight into the deep end. Ayahuasca first. I know. How, <laughs> I know. It's big. So bizarre. I did it with this tribe that travels around and does these ceremonies. And so I really want to go directly to Peru or to Costa Rica or something and do it. Yeah. I went to Brazil from my first set of ceremonies so worthwhile very worthwhile i'm gonna do it did you but i didn't even get sick everyone around me got sick yeah i i say if you're lucky if you're lucky you get sick yeah yeah otherwise i I mean it's the the purging is such a powerful experience it it feels like you're getting rid of things that couldn't possibly exist within your body yeah yeah, I've had some strange experiences 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I vomited. Excuse me. Excuse me, listeners. Yep. Information that you need. <laughs> um, a bowl full of black, dry flecks. Like little flecks. They almost look like ashes. But like a full bowl full just came out. Yeah. I have, I have no idea how that could possibly happen. That makes no sense. Oh, so like physically things that you can't imagine. Physic, yeah, f- actual physical things. Oh, wow. And this was about three hours after everybody had come down. Like, we were all just kind of hanging out, yeah. dis- discussing our experiences. And I was like, oh, no, what's this? And it was like, Hur. Wow. Ash. Just a, a bowl full of ash. That's crazy. That's actually so funny because I got sick once, but it was after everyone went to sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I got sick. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm excited to do it again. Have you done combo? I have. I have. I love combo. Really? I will never do it again. Oh, I did it three times. I have how many? 17 dots on my arm. Uh huh. I did the three within one uh, full moon cycle. Right, yeah, I did that. Yep. Yeah. Um, you don't like it? No, no. I think it's the most miserable thing ever. <laughs> it's just it's so oh. uncomfortable. Oh, my God. And just coming out of both ends. I'm like, oh, why? this feels terrible. Like, at least at least give me some kind of cool visual or like fun thoughts. I'm just like, oh, oh when's it going to stop? What's it, 20 minutes? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, it is. I agree. Physically, it's rough. It is a rough one. But I really love it. Like, every time I did it, I felt like, I just felt like, I don't know, a lot of connectivity very quickly, but in like, in such a clear way. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it. I'm like such a fan. Yeah, the, I, the after effect is great. It's like, yeah. do you have any tattoos? I have one. So that moment when a tattoo is done, like the session's over, and the artist is like, <laughs> I'm done. You're like, ah, oh, okay. And it's just like this relief and release that's so powerful. That's kind of what Combo reminded me of. It was like when it's over, it's like, ah, okay. Like just right. grateful to feel like a normal human (laughs) oh i always felt like i was a magical fairy after combo and then just eating all the best like fruits and veggies and everything tastes so good because you've been starving yourself for like 24 hours at that point (laughs) this is amazing i I was but i did it all three times with my friend and she had a rough time the last time Oh man, she got frog face. So yeah. her whole, yeah. oh <laughs> my gosh, like I just didn't even want to tell her what she actually looked like. <laughs> like your face is <laughs> so freaky. It's really freaky. Yeah, so I don't know that she'll ever do it again, but I really like I'm a big fan of it. And I felt so cool, which is so goofy, but I loved that because I did it on my arm. People asked, you know, because it has the dragon's blood on there, so it looks so intense. What is that? And so I got to tell the story so many times. Oh sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did I did my three sessions with it was one day combo, one day ayahuasca, one day combo, one day ayahuasca, one day combo. So I was squeaky clean by the end of that week. Yeah. It was kind of intense. It was That's kind of a intense. intense way to do it. You must have slept for like two days. Uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have slept so much. Yeah. Where did you do your burns? Um, I did it on my arm. 
I kind of like your upper arm. My upper arm, yeah. Can't really see him anymore. I did it right along the line of an existing tattoo. Oh, so, okay. yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was. Cool. You're so funny. You're like combos the worst. <laughs> it's so disgusting. Tough. It's so tough. <laughs> Just all this water. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Rough, rough. All right, we're going to change directions. We've got to, got to get out of the, the excreting bodily fluids section of the show. Um, so back to the practices. So you had mentioned that when you were going through this big change, you started doing yeah. visualizations and meditations and all that kind of stuff. And, and how have those carried through and helped you along your entrepreneurial path? <sighs> all my meditations and affirmations? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They are my lifeblood. Like I can't survive without it because I still will one, those moments help me gain clarity and disconnect from what can become just like the anxiety of everything. I find like if I get too in the weeds of all the minutia of what is business, all the little things like all the contracts, all the resistances people have, like all then I just freak out. Like I just can get in this very, the world starts to seem smaller, you know? And so meditations and affirmations help me remember that I am one with source energy, you know, and all is possible. So that's really how it helps me. That actually happened recently. <laughs> I was like, I had not meditated or done any of that in a while. And I was on one. I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm a failure. Like I was just not okay. My, my, everything's failed. Um, I, whoops. I, uh, um, time to rewrite life. I don't know what to do. Like I was just freaking out. I was freaking out and then realized, okay, I should probably, I should probably meditate. <laughs> like, cause I just got in the state. Like none of this is going to work. What are you out of your mind? You know, because it's a lot of scary things like to what it's a lot of what can feel like risk. But if you if I step back and look, it's not actual risk, but it can feel like it. And so, yeah, that stuff just reminds me of me and helps me detach from all the little things, you know, Yeah. like a big, big. I couldn't do any of it without that stuff. Yeah, I think that's so important so important oh seriously yeah because yeah what are we really doing here you know we're, we're this weird meat suit that is ridiculously complicated animated animated by some energy that we can't possibly understand that everybody's got a different story for and floating on a really cool rock that's spinning really 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 fast twenty two thousand miles an hour around the sun so yeah, crazy like what are we doing <laughs> what are we doing, <laughs> what are we doing? I think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just being here, I'm really proud. I'm like, I brush my, I've, my new phrase recently has been being human is a lot of responsibility. That like just being human, if you look at, you know how much upkeep we are? So we are much. so high maintenance. <laughs> it's wild. And then you add on top of that that you want to start a business or you're having kids or you're having really like all this other stuff that's on top of just trying to maintain a human body <laughs> like an existence. Mind blowing. Completely mind blowing. It used to be so simple. We used to just be able to have kids, make kids, 
find food. Yeah. <laughs> Tell stories and dance with your people. Like that's all you had to do. That was that must have been so cool. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. What a peaceful existence. Yeah. And then maybe sometimes there's like battles, you know, and that's just yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's all the things. It's all the things. It's in the news feed about every day's battles. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So we got cannabis, right? It helps yeah. get through all that stuff. <laughs> yes. Oh, it helps people get through all of it. Seriously. Yeah, it really does. Thank goodness. We need yeah. some help. That's why the plants are here for us. That one of the coolest things that Adam Bierman told me was he was like, I'm looking forward to the day when it's just boring. When weed is boring. When it's yeah. not cool, where it's not scary, where it's not being criticized, it's just boring. Yeah. And I was like, I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's just a product. It's just like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, like, that is what it is. Right, right. Just as simple as like, oh, you, t- you drink chamomile teal before bed so you can sleep better? Okay, great. You know? Cool. So I take a, a gummy half hour before bed too. No big deal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And where no one feels too cool because they work with it. I think that's really exciting. Right now there's so much ego around it. Mm -hmm. Like that not being, I don't know anyone who works in like chocolate that's got a ton of ego, you know, because they work with cocoa. (laughs) You you didn't ever live in the Bay Area, huh? I I did not. No. People who made cocos that was just divine and cacao ceremonies (laughs) and oh. So much oh, ego and pretension. Ceremony. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's there too, even with chocolate. Yeah, the heart opening. Yeah. yeah. Not, not, not taking anything away from the beauty of the ceremony. It's just maybe the folks that run it could have a little bit more humility. Yes, I hear you. Yes. Yeah. Is Adam Bierman still in cannabis or is he doing psilocybin now? No, he's still in cannabis. Okay. Yeah, doing different stuff. Working. Yeah different sides of things being still being a, a pioneer still pushing the limits and Great. things that he wasn't able to talk about because he's doing stuff that's super secret right now like cool great good for you uh, love the super secret yeah those kind of spirits you want to just be like okay go ahead you know switch gears do your thing come up with new yeah. ideas keep doing it it's great absolutely yeah so i feel I like do. you have one of those spirits juliana i do seems like it Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> like you go do do your thing. <laughs> yeah. I definitely I relate to it. Yeah. I definitely relate to it. So is there anything else that you wanna tell the listeners? No, just share? go buy obviously every Leaf Sheets product ninety times <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know, give Ken strategy a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you know anybody that's thinking about getting into the cannabis business, it's a really great place to start. You'll be able to find all sorts of super helpful forms to help you yeah. along your way. Answers to questions. We've got the forms. And it's really, it's, Nick is so funny because he's always like, why do you keep telling people that it, so this is our first step of Leaf Sheets, right? There's so much more to the vision. And this is the step that I'm really proud that Nick and I built just the two of us. So now we're moving into, we're going to be doing a capital raise so we can build out all the rest of it. 
So he's always like, you're making it sound like it's not enough as it is. I'm like, it's so cool as it is. And it's only going to get cooler. Like, how cool is it that this is only part of the vision? That is, um, this would be some people's whole vision. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) We'll be building out more pieces of it too. Cool. We'll have to bring you on when you've started moving those directions too, so you could share more about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm excited. And I'd be so excited to tell you about the race too. It's my first one. Ah, well, uh, Well, fundraising is an interesting experience. Yeah, I did it for Ohio. I didn't actually like get the capital, but I did get someone to sign and notarize that they would give it to me if I won this license. And that was 3 million. So that gave me a lot of hope for myself that I can raise capital. (laughs) I basically raised it. We didn't get that license, but if we had gotten the lottery pull, I would have raised capital. I had Uh (laughs) it. Yeah. It takes energy. It takes a great story. Yeah. And it takes the total confidence in what you have and who you are and what you're doing. So you got this. Yeah. Yeah. You're all right. I'd be so excited to come back and talk with you. This has been so fun. It has been. It's been super fun. All right. And I will put all your info in the show notes. Everybody can check it out there and find out everything they want to know about you and leaf sheets and can strategy and all that good stuff. (laughs) And thank you so much for hanging out today. It's been great. Thank you. It has been great. Thanks again, everyone, for making it this far and listening to the entire episode with Juliana. She's a trip, huh? We had a lot of fun, and I really hope that she has tremendous success in her business ventures and they evolve in the way that she believes that they will. And I'll be able to bring her back on the show so we can have another good time together. And if you haven't already, make sure you go over to wherever it is that you love to listen to podcasts and leave a review. Let me know how I'm doing. Reach out to me directly, Matthew at edgeofcannabismedicine.com. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear if you have any suggestions for guests or suggestions for me in general, whatever it might be. And until next time, my friends, please stay healthy and enjoy yourselves.